for Joby. And I'm gonna sing a song for you. Damn, Chris gonna show you a thing or two. This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our very good friends at Oro Recovery. Oro Recovery is located in sunny Southern California in Malibu, somewhere in Western Los Angeles. It's created by our old friend Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. Their mission to provide recovery by the means of compassion and connection, not control. Treatment, recovery, getting better, treating co-occurring mental illnesses, plus putting you up in a nice place, plus making you feel good about being you, plus rebuilding on the wreckage of your past, plus amenities, sound bath meditation, yoga, equine therapy, surfing, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge. They have it all. And if you don't believe me, Look at their reviews. And if you don't believe me or their reviews, go to their website. Ask a friend. Everyone we know that has been to Oro loved it. Check them out at ororecovery.com. And I know that sounds trite for treatment, but it's true. Ororecovery.com. The proof is in the pudding. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by Sober Buddy. What is Sober Buddy? Sober Buddy is an app that helps you stay sober. It is a social media style platform. It is a series of Zooms. They have Zooms every day. Check them out. Go to YourSoberBuddy.com. Go to the Google Play Store or the App Store if you are looking for a sober app for your toolbox. Check out Sober Buddy. This episode of Dopey is brought to you by Soberlink. We need to talk about alcohol recovery in the workplace. Talking about sobriety and proving it to your employer can be so difficult, and our friends at Soberlink want to help. If you need a reliable way to present documented proof of sobriety to a boss or a loved one, we can help you. Soberlink is a high-tech portable breathalyzer system that uses facial recognition technology to verify identity. It has unique sensors to ensure that no other air sources are being used, and it sends results directly to your specified contacts. So there's no questioning whether or not you took the test and whether or not you altered the reporting. This is why Soberlink's remote alcohol monitoring system is considered the gold standard. Being in recovery from alcohol does not define your future. Let Soberlink help. Learn more about Soberlink and request an exclusive 50 bucks off first device promo code by visiting www.soberlink.com slash dopey. WWW. People don't like it when I say WWW. Soberlink.com slash dopey. Can I just say that? Is that, is that okay? 
I'm going to just say that from now on. All right. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you guys by Recovery in the Middle Ages. If you're looking for another recovery podcast, you should check out the folks at RMA, Nat and Mike, fucking shit up, giving their take on what it is to be a middle-aged suburban dad. It's funny because I'm also a middle-aged suburban dad now. What a, what a world. Check them out as they struggle and deal with maintaining the recovery and anonymity in the world of soccer moms and PTA meetings. Find Recovery in the Middle Ages on every platform you get your podcasts or at middleagesrecovery.com. And last but not least, this podcast of Dopey, this podcast, this broadcast of Dopey, this podcast of Dopey is brought to you by the amazing people at the Phoenix. The Phoenix is an incredible app. It is free. It is designed for addicts to have fun. Whether you want to be weight training or CrossFit training or taking a nature hike or fucking learning how to do origami or do yoga, we're doing an event. It's on the books. The last week in January, at the end of the week, we are having an event in New York City with the folks at the Phoenix. Hank Azaria said he'll be there. I will be there. It's going to be a good time. Nice, sober, fun. Please check it out. Go to thephoenix.com slash dopey to find all you need to know about the Phoenix. They're just an incredible group because they want you guys to live your best lives and they don't want your money. What's better than people that want you to live your best lives and not want your money? I don't even know. Check them out, thephoenix.com slash dopey. And now enough with these ads, and here is the New Year's show. Hello, and happy New Year's. Happy fucking New Year's, and welcome to the Special New Year's edition of Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave. I hope you guys had a Merry Christmas. Happy fucking New Year's. I'm excited for New Year's. I got fucking ill as shit. I got the horrible flu. You know, when last we checked in, Nora got the flu, and I was excited to have a very low-impact Christmas, and then everybody got the flu, and it was a heart of darkness around here. Well, here, I got some New Year's messages. Let's go to some dopey New Year's messages. And let's kick it off with the star of last week's episode, the dopey heartthrob, the Iowa Smoke Show, Matthew Wiedemeyer Carroll. What's up, Dave and Dopey Nation? It's Matt Wiedemeyer motherfucking Carroll coming to you live from John Deere Engine Works in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of a cornfield, fucking Iowa. Hope you all have a great New Year's. You know, if a shit gets too tough, go to one of them stupid meetings. It works for me. It's better than the alternative. I'll be hitting a meeting probably and then going to my brother-in-law's. And we're probably just going to sit around, play cards, and drink some non-alcoholic beer. And it's going to be a great time. Anyways, I hope you guys have a great New Year's, man. Stay sober. Love you guys. 
Fucking toodles for Chris. Hi, Dopey Nation. It's Margaret Cho wishing you a happy new year. Let's make this year the best year. And if you're struggling, if you're trying, if you're chipping, I feel you. I feel you so much. Uh, I get it. But we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. Stay strong, Dopey Nation. And toodles for Chris. Love you. Everybody, this is Katie B from NorCal. I just wanted to wish everyone a happy new year. Tell you guys I love you. I'm stoked we're on this journey together. Um, Dave, I really appreciate all that you do. And to the folks in Dopey Zoom, you guys get me through daily. And uh, for those of you who haven't hit up Dopey Zoom yet, consider it because um, we're a tight-knit crew. And it makes DopeyCon more fun to go meet all those people. So yay, all things Dopey. Uh, and yay, 2024. I am definitely done with 2023. Uh, and uh, I'm ready for what's coming next. So um, I'm stoked uh, to do this with you guys. Again, Happy New Year, everybody. I always forget how much I love New Year's. I'm a really positive person. I love Christmas. I love New Year's. The new Willy Wonka movie, not so great, but New Year's I really, really, really love. And we got so sick during Christmas that I finally feel better. And when you have a flu for three days, it's like invasion of the body snatchers. So when I finally woke up in the morning without searing head pain and compression and fever and cough that makes your whole brain ache, I was like, I felt so good to be alive. It was, it was incredible. And I, I felt so good to take a walk. I walked the dog. I felt so good. And it's with that vigor that I would like to approach the new year. And I think that we can, listen, I'm going to get corny for a second. All right. As people, as addicts, as people in recovery, as people who are aspiring to be in recovery, as people who are considering recovery, it's like, that's the fucking thing. Be aspiring to feel good. And I feel very hopeful. And New Year's is a great time to be hopeful. And, and that's all I'm saying. And grateful. Super, and I'm super grateful for everybody who's involved with our community and everybody who contributes to the show, and that is so many people. I'm going to try to give a comprehensive uh, bunch of shout-outs today, and I'm going to try to do them as um, alphabetical as I can. A, we'll start with my dad. Big shout-out to my dad. I don't know if he's going to appear on the show today. Maybe. Maybe not. I don't, I don't think so. I think, I think we're in the home stretch without him. You can hear him on the post near your show. I want to give a big shout out to Britta, our art designer. All right. I'm not going to make a whole big fucking everybody. Claire, Cormac, the, the list will go on. I'm very, very grateful for our community. I'm very, very grateful uh, for our, that I get to make this show and, 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 and we get to talk about recovery. Today's guest is fucking killer. Her name, she's been on the show, Maya Solovitz. She writes for the New York Times. She wrote a book called Undoing Drugs. She might be the greatest champion of addicts that there is. My talk with her this week really rejuvenated me 
around Dopey and Amelia, who's our, our co-producer and editor. And she agreed that this Maya Solovitz talk was super just reinvigorating for the show, which is awesome. And then John Bucati calls in and you're not going to believe who finally comes on the show. And that is Jake from West Virginia, who did the incredibly amazing banjo version of Good So Bad. He gives his first update ever, which is awesome. But before any of that, I want to just say that this episode of Dopey is brought to you by the good people at Mountainside. I love Mountainside. If you know anything about Dopey, you know that I went to Mountainside. It's a treatment center. It's where I met Chris. It is the origin of Dopey. Dopey would not exist without Mountainside. We told stories and wandered around Mountainside in Canaan, Connecticut. We did the labyrinth together. We did yoga together. Mountainside is an incredible treatment center. They offer a full continuum of care, which includes detox, residential, long-term treatment, outpatient, and amazing recovery coaching. So whatever program a person needs, they got it. They also started two programs specifically designed to help families heal. So if a dad or a wife or whoever needs help, Mountainside can provide it. Mountainside is super passionate about what they do. Check them out at mountainside.com slash dopey. They're going to have a lot of interesting little dopey tidbits on that website. So check it out at mountainside.com slash dopey and call them if you need anything at one 888 I think I said four eights, one 888 833-4922. And if you're fucked and you're willing to go to Canaan, Connecticut, you should check out Mountainside. Okay, I just want to read some notes. I got this note from one of my favorite dopes, Dan Allen Sr. And Dan Allen Sr. says, Hey, just finally got through the Christmas episode. Got to the part about sobriety date tattoos. I have my date tattooed on me. Is it possible I pick up a drink again at some point? Sure. But that doesn't... Cutaneous... What the fuck is cutaneous? That doesn't cutaneous the fact... Dan, what does cutaneous mean? Do I not know this word? There's supposed to be change? Does that... That does not cutaneous the fact that 5-13-18 was a life-changing date for me. And if there are other meaningful days along the way, maybe I'll add those too. Maybe you should tattoo cutaneous. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't laugh. It comes out of this horrible cackle, maniacal cough. Um, yeah, da, 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 da. Maybe I'll add those too. The idea that tattooing a sobriety date is bad luck is based on the wrong idea that if you relapse, that the time you had sober before the relapse was somehow meaningless or something, which is categorically cutaneous bullshit. Thank you, Dan. It's good to, it's good, always good to get a note from Dan. Even better to hear him on the show. What's happened to the movie seller? Dan always wants Forever in Debt to be played on the show. I feel like it's got to be posted on Patreon. I will post a new Forever in Debt on Patreon. Also, I did a weird alternate opening of the show this week with a sort of movie review of Wonka. And I will post that on Patreon. So join Patreon. If you're a page, if you're a dopey fan and you're not on Patreon, just fucking throw a couple bucks at Patreon. It helps, helps the dopey cause and it gives you access to tons more dopey and tons more coming soon. 
the um, the Wednesday morning meeting will not be available through Sober Buddy anymore. It will only be available through Patreon. So join Patreon. Our Zoom is fucking killer. So um, whatever. Just fucking go to patreon.com slash dopeypodcast and join the winning. As Smiling Joe always says, surrender to the winning side. All right. I got an exciting... We have an exciting new member of our Patreon community, which which I never noticed, but he calls himself Paul Bear, which I guess is like Paul Bearer, but I just thought of him, I, I, but he's also gay and maybe he's a bear. I don't know. So are you, Paul, are you a Paul Bearer or is it a Paul Bear or is it a double, double meaning there? Paul sent in a voicemail. I got to play it. I, I found it to be very, uh, I don't know, riveting. But before we get to Paul, I just need to say that this episode of Dopey is made possible by the folks at the Diamond Recovery Group. These amazing people kicked off just last year, and their mission was to help out as many friends as possible who are dealing with addiction. They were started with the intention of knowing that if somebody can get help for treatment, why shouldn't anybody that needs it get help? They have three amazing residential treatment centers up and running already. And get this, they've set up a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week hotline. The number is 844-909-2525. Diamond Recovery is ready to help you or the person you love overcome their substance use disorder and achieve better mental health. They have it all. You need to make the first move. If you're fucked and you want to go to Florida or Georgia, call them at 1-844-909-2525 or visit them at diamondrecovery.com. All right, and here's the voicemail from Paul. Hi, this is Paul Bear. Um, I'm American. I currently living in Manchester, UK. And I just want to say I recently found your Dopey Podcast on Facebook. On my dog's Facebook, because I use, I don't have Facebook, but my dog does. <laughs> Anyways, um, Dave, you know, I think your podcast has actually made me realize that enough is enough with the stuff that I'm um, taking. Uh, Reader's Digest version, going back 2007, 2008, I was in rehab in, in Florida uh, for painkillers, Vicodin, Percocet, um, Oxycontin. Um, due to a car accident, was clean after that, and then um, met my husband, uh, an Italian, moved to Italy, and then we moved to the UK. Um, and then over here, um, let me just tell you, beer, you know, I never had a problem with alcohol, but I, now I do because I'll have a drink and immediately with the drink, I'll want cocaine. Um, Cocaine over here is prevalent. It goes hand in hand with alcohol. And it's to the point where my, my husband never even used to even drink. Um, but I got him, to, you know, I had him try Coke. So it's like during the pandemic, it was like two times a week, three times a week. Um, we were associating that with chem sex. So it was like the only time that we really have sex, you know, sorry to be frank, but is when we did coke. So now uh, three years later, you know, we're, you know, we'll, we'll go out for a drink with, with our friends and have a few, not even a few, just one. And I'll be calling the dealer. Um, it's a nightmare. 
it's a re- it's really a nightmare. Um, just after hearing some stories on Dopey, you know, and I love your podcast because it's real, you know, it's real people, real stories, and I just, yeah, I can relate, <laughs> you know, I can relate, and you don't discriminate against people who, who are still using. So I've made a pledge, I just want to call, you know, just leave a voicemail just saying that I made a pledge after New Year's um, that I'm going to stop. So I already have plans that I think on New Year's Eve I'm going to order some. But I don't want to. <laughs> I really don't want to. Of course I don't want to. Um, so I'm just going to continue listening to your podcast. Eventually go to meetings. I'm, I've, I've never been to a meeting over here. Um, they're also frowned upon in a lot in the, in the, commu- in the GLBTQ community. Um, people who are sober, the ones that I've met really don't do meetings. I mean, not saying that they don't, but I haven't met anybody that has done a meeting um, but, um, anyways, I'm just waffling on here. Um, just to say, wish me luck, but I know what I need to do. I uh, just want to share the story with you and, um, I'm just going to white knuckle it. You know, I know your new year's Eve is big over here and, uh, you know, every morning would say it's, we need to stop next time. This is the last time. This is the last time, but it never is. But something has to give. Anyways, Dave, I just want to say thank you for this podcast. Um, it's amazing. All your guests are amazing. And uh, toodles to Chris. I'm going back and revisiting all the podcasts. So um, I hope you have a great New Year's and um, hope to speak to you guys soon. Okay. Toodles to Chris. Like I said, Happy New Year's. Paul, I don't know why your voicemail touched me so deeply. Maybe maybe it was the chem sex or maybe it was the the no gaze at meetings, or maybe it was uh, the white knuckling. But we need as many chemsex stories for Dopey as we can. So please send in another story with explicit chemsex details if you can. I find that world fascinating. Second, I know so many gay people that go to meetings. They love meetings. Uh, at least the gays, a lot of the gay people that I know love meetings. And three, or C, you don't have to white knuckle it. There's so many things you can do, and I think you did a great thing by sending us this voicemail. There is, obviously, there's 12-step meetings available in England, and there are Zoom meetings available in England. But that might be too big of a jump. So my first suggestion to you is check out the Dopey Nation Zoom. Dopey Nation Zoom is free. They meet seven days a week. Uh, It's posted on our Instagram page. I actually sent you a copy of it. So if you are looking for the Dopey Nation Zoom, check out Instagram and and follow Dopey Nation on Facebook. Follow the Dopey Podcast Facebook group on Facebook. Big shout out to all the admins in Dopey Nation and Dopey Podcast Facebook group. Your guys' help is incredibly appreciated. And let's get to some more New Year's Dopey messages. This is Suki in the San Francisco Bay Area, wishing everyone in the Dopey Nation a very, very happy Dopey New Year's. Toodles. Hello, this is Simon LeBon, and you're watching MTV. I mean, Happy New Year, Dopey Nation. This is Simon LeBon from Duran Duran, wishing you a happy and a healthy New Year's. Stay strong and fucking toodles for Christmas. Happy New Year, Dopey Nation. I'm so excited for this new year. 
This is Nicole. I have spent every single day of 2023 sober, and that just thrills me to death. I have never done that in my entire adult life, so it's a really exciting milestone for me. If you're struggling out there and you need help, reach out because you don't have to do this alone and you are not alone. I hope you all have the best New Year's celebrations and the happiest 2024. I love you, Dave, and I hope you have a wonderful celebration with your family and fucking toodles for Chris. Hey, everyone. Uh, This is Kat Marnell, and uh, just want to wish everyone a happy new year. And, uh, you know, like whatever, Uh, stay strong, blah, blah, blah. Dopey Nation, it's Doug Bobst, your favorite fitness trainer, wishing everyone a happy and healthy new year. And let's make sure to get Davey Boy in the best shape of his life in 2024. Wait a second. Did he just say I have to get in shape now? Man, I was doing so good on my uh, couch to 5K. I was doing so fucking good. I had gotten up to running five and six minutes at a time when I was stricken like a, with an illness, with the flu, and now I haven't run since Christmas Eve day, which was also the day I was stricken. I wonder if that was related. I don't know. Can you believe Kat Marnell, Simon LeBon, all those good people, Nicole, Suki, the author of Sea Swallow Me, and also celebrating 24 years on Monday, assuming she doesn't fuck it up this weekend. Congratulations, Suki. Check out Sea Swallow Me wherever you get your books. I always love making the stupid New Year's shows. So thanks for everybody contributing. And we're going to get to this. I mean, maybe I'm making a big deal of it, but I found this talk with Maya Solovitz to be very, very inspiring. And if you're a drug addict in or out of recovery, you should listen to what she has to say. I almost feel bad that it's in our New Year's show, but I was too sick. Oh, dude, you're not even going to believe the Fentanyl J latest. I just refuse to tell it without him. I can't tell it without him. And he's dodging me. He's fucking dodging me. He's right now at Dirty Taco dodging me. And I'm worried that he's going to keep dodging me until we miss him and we don't know what happens, but the the latest on Fentanyl J is fucking out of control. It is it is legendary proportions. But as always, we love Jay. I'm thinking of stalking him at his dad's house or at Dirty Taco, but I'm trying to respect his autonomy. I guess not his privacy, but he's he's mentioned the talk. We're gonna get to Maya, but before we do, I just want to say that this episode of Dopey is brought to you by the amazing people at Discover Recovery. Potentially the greatest treatment you can get anywhere in the Pacific Northwest, which is a historically underserved community. So many fucking junkies out there. You can't throw a stick and miss a junkie in the Pacific Northwest. Does the phrase junkie offend you, by the way? I don't know if it offends the people at Discover Recovery. Hope, let's say you can't throw a stick and not hit someone with substance use disorder in the Pacific Northwest. Discover Recovery has the most important thing that any treatment center could have, which is integrity, 
They believe in helping people. They believe in the fact that their clients can get better and they're willing to do whatever is necessary to get them better. They also have luxury accommodations. And what our friend Chris Paulson said one time, he said, I'm not great at selling, but we operate with integrity. You personally know one of the co-founders. I do. And we are trying to do right by those we serve and we have a proven track record. Check the the reviews is what Chris always said to me. Check them out at www.discoverrecovery.com. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Discover Recovery. And now the I think if not the most important voices in addiction and recovery, one of them, she's an addict. She's a New York Times writer. She's an author. Her book is called Undoing Drugs. She's probably the world leader in harm reduction. Her name is Maya Solovitz, and she's back on Dopey for New Year's. And one of the coolest things, and not to ruin the interview or anything, is we hit on just about every major topic concerning addicts and addiction this year for New Year's. So it's actually the perfect comprehensive New Year's guest. So without further ado, how's your singing? Um, it's going well, but I'm not going to sing for you yet. Yeah, I was just, I was revisiting our talk, which I loved. And, and before I say anything else, we have the brilliant and lovely Maya Solovitz, author, journalist, harm reduction expert, and singer. Maybe. Welcome back. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to my apartment. Thank you for having me back. Um, Maya was at DopeyCon 2022, and you were on the show, and, and we talked about your book, Undoing Drugs, and we talked about a very, very, very amazing moment where you sold cocaine to Jerry Garcia. What do you think about Jonah Hill playing Jerry? Mm, I don't know. He's playing Jerry. That's so crazy. I didn't even know that. Do you think it's pot? What was your inter? Remind me of what it was like. So um, I was in awe. Um, I was like, he was on the bed, and I'm sitting in a chair in this hotel suite. And um, you know, I just remember it's always weird. Like his voice is smaller than you expect from his body and from his singing voice. So it was just like it was just kind of overwhelming. But I definitely remember um, him, you know, talking about how my name Maya means illusion in Buddhism, which is the real world, which is considered an illusion. And, you know, just kind of tripping on that and, and <laughs> talking about that. And uh, yeah, so. Did was, he have a guitar in his lap? He did not have a guitar in his lap. Um, we were doing coke. Okay. There was no music, sadly. No music playing in the background either. I don't think so. If there was, I don't remember it, but I probably would have remembered it if there was. Who else was in the room? Um, it was um, me and one of his other dealers, basically, who like at that point, I was just like a friend of this guy. And I had been trying to, there was a complicated story around this because my boyfriend also sold Coke to him, but he had sort of left me in this hotel and the police had come into our room and they were busting somebody else. And so I couldn't go back in that room. And I was, I saw this guy who I knew and I was like, um, can you please just get me into the hotel where the band is staying and get me past security? I knew he was going to see Jerry. And then we were in the elevator. I was like, can I come to see Jerry? So that happened. Yes. 
I love I love that story. Anybody who gets to sit with Jerry, I need to I need to get as much of that. Well, I did not, you know, I did not get to like hang out with him for all that long, but it was amazing at the time. It is amazing at the time. And when last we spoke, you spoke about how you were once a 12-step person and, and now you are incredibly entrenched in the world of harm reduction. And then you said something that I really was thinking about a lot where when you get into something, you really get into it. Yes, that is, um, you know, it's a sort of autism spectrum trait that I fully own. And whatever I do, I fully throw myself into for the most part. I mean, there's exceptions, obviously, but um, when I was using, I was using. <laughs> when I got into recovery via the only way I was told was possible, um, I was really into it 100% because I wanted to, I knew I needed to change. And I am not anti 12 step. I am not opposed to 12 step. The thing I am opposed to is forcing it on people and making people pay for it. And what I mean by that is that like 90% of the rehabs in the United States, the focus is teaching you to accept the ideas of the 12 steps. And that is problematic to me because A, you can get that for free and they're charging like $1,000 a day or more. And B, because there's many different paths to recovery. And if you teach this one as a central path, you are denying other people's truths. And you're also telling them the only alternative is jails, institutions, and death, which means that you're dooming them if this doesn't work for them. And there are many other pathways that can. So I end up being seen as like somebody who opposes the 12 steps, even though I absolutely do not. I just oppose the misuse of them. Sure. And, and like you basically want people to do well. Exactly. Like it's like if 12 step works for you, I am like, go for it, do it, throw yourself into it. You know, I still believe the most important slogan is take what you like and leave the rest because, you know, like people vary. Addiction is like really, really varied. And somebody might go into 12 step rooms and be like, okay, I'm on Suboxone. And, um, you know, if you go to NA, now some meetings are better than others, but if you go to NA, they will say you're not clean, which I hate that terminology, but anyway, you're not really in recovery. And so, you know, we have two medications, buprenorphine, AKA Suboxone and methadone that cut the death rate from opioid addiction by 50% or more if you stay on them. And telling people to come off in this environment of fentanyl, like, because you're not really in recovery, when your life is really going well and you're not having side effects and things are working for you, my attitude is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And you should really not be telling people things that could kill them. Totally. I, I, I've, I facilitated a Zoom, a recovery Zoom this morning, and there was a woman in the Zoom who, it's interesting because I was thinking about this, she's in Narcotics Anonymous and she's on buprenorphine and she, she can't disclose it in the meeting because she's scared of getting kicked out. Her, she doesn't even disclose it to her husband because he's a member of Narcotics Anonymous also. Oh, God. And I couldn't really give any cogent advice except you know, a different cliche, which is we're only as sick as our secrets. So make sure you're talking about it with somebody. So well, you're not. And creating. I would also, I, what I would say is go to AA. That's what I, I, that's what I was thinking when I was walking here. Why didn't I just say that? But I think I'm going to write her. Yeah. Because like the thing is that AA, in my view, rightfully says, if you're honest with your doctor about your addiction, 
and they prescribe medication to you, that is between you and your doctor. AA has a pamphlet. It says somewhere in this pamphlet, we are not doctors. Like, and the whole thing is that, like, yes, in the 30s when AA was developed, there were a lot of, and there still are, in fact, a lot of quack treatments for addiction, and doctors can give you medications that can be addictive. This is clearly a true thing. But we have a much greater understanding of addiction than we did back then. And what we understand now, and this is why I believe NA is just wrong about this, is that addiction is compulsive drug use despite negative consequences. Physical dependence is needing a substance to function. So if you're on Suboxone and you're taking it as prescribed and you're on the right dose for you, you are not high because the you have a complete tolerance. And what that means is you can drive, you can work, you can love, you're not emotionally impaired or any of these things that they claim. On the other hand, if you're taking other stuff on top of it where you're taking it like I take it one day and then I don't take it the other day and so like you can actually get high because you're not in a complete tolerance state, then you are um, not in recovery by the 12-step view of abstinence recovery um, and not in recovery by the view of people who see recovery on medications as being only if you're stable and not doing the things I just talked about, right? So I just think there's so much fentanyl and other nonsense and disgusting stuff in the supply now. One relapse can kill you. Or you can end up with these horrible wounds that you get from like xylazine. Like if you are taking Suboxone or Methadone and you that is working for you and you want to be involved in 12-step, go to AA where they're not going to, you know, where it's none of their business. But isn't it so interesting how, how there's no like easy, and I say this in quotes, like there's no easy way because if you're an addict that goes to AA, you can get shunned for not being, for having drugs be your primary purpose of being. That's also true, except not, you know, in New York, at least when I was going, there were at least two meetings in Lower East Side, which were, I don't know what they call them now. Um, well, there one was called Clean and Sober, Second Avenue Clean and Dry, it was called. Clean and Dry. Yes. The old Clean I, and Dry. Yes. I called it the laundromat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right That's what now. they're going for. Yeah. But uh, also some people called it Second Avenue Scream and Cry. Um, anyway, it was deliberately for people who had both alcohol and other drug problems. And it was an AA meeting. Well, I got... I got Sober in AA, and 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 no one cared if I talked about people heroin. do not care anymore. However, our listeners are all over the world, and their meeting is just a bunch of old time alcoholics who don't want to hear about drugs. And and yes, I think to pursue the spiritual solution where you cannot be judged for taking medication as prescribed, and if you're going in for the solution, I find that to be a path. But I'm really intrigued at the notion of a non denominational recovery program. Like creating one. Well, I mean, you mean non-dominational as in 12-step for whatever you're 12-stepping for or non-12-step at all? More Unitarian yeah. where you're taking yeah. bits and pieces from everything yeah. and slapping it together, even getting a text together, right. getting meetings together, getting like a program in there so that you get more at the meeting than just one thing. Yeah. I mean, smart recovery tries to do that, actually. They basically take from all the cognitive behavioral stuff and all the... Well, stuff slogans that are not like get on your knees. Right. 
Um, so, um, you know, and they have a professional facilitator who is often a person in recovery who is trained to lead the meeting so that they get the diversity of stuff into there. The thing is with that, it is still an abstinence goal. And so I don't know if you mean being ecumenical to the point of where people can have a controlled use goal, or if you mean ecumenical only within abstinence. But I would say for in terms of ecumenical within abstinence. What's ecumenical? Oh, ecumenical. What does it mean? It means like, it means non-denominational. It's like, it means across churches. Because like non-denominational might still be Christian. Ecumenical might include Jewish and Muslim. So it'd be like- I'm thinking more ecumenical then. Yes. And I need to do some research into smart recovery because I don't know anything about it. Yeah, they, I mean, um, in my experience, they seem very cool and really try to just basically be like, well, whatever the evidence says, we're going to use. But they are definitely like not focused on moderation goals. They're not going to throw you out if you have a moderation goal, but their focus is abstinence. Yeah, moderation goals freak me out. They just do, you know, because I, I get so scared for. I can totally see that. But on the other hand, in the 12 and 12, it says, if you are not convinced, try some Control drinking. drinking. And so- That's the I phrase that pays. Yes. I don't think they should be, like, I don't think people should be scared of it because for people who are not convinced, if you try it in a supervised way, especially, or even if you're just going to be very honest with yourself, write it down, look at it. Are you doing what you're supposed to do or are you cheating it? You know, you'll be able to see pretty quickly if you are actually reducing- I think that's really, really smart. You know when they say if the, it works for anyone who's not constitutionally incapable of being honest? I always thought that was like a little trick to get people to, to either be honest or know that they, you know, it's really a trick to get people to be honest. Yeah, although, I mean, I kind of find it stigmatizing, so I don't like that idea because I, do, like, okay, it is true there are sociopaths in the world. Like, we have to admit that this is the case. And they, honesty or no honesty, they are probably not going to find sobriety simply because if you have no moral compass and you do not care, I don't see why you would want sobriety. Although I guess if you want to be a more evil person more efficiently. And your evil dudes. <laughs> but, your evil um, doings. Um, you know, I mean, I, I can see that all right. But yeah, I mean, it is complicated. And, you know, there's the language is very old. But I do think that, you know, it is... It is really important if you are trying to deal with your substance use in any way that you have to be honest with yourself about it because otherwise you can very easily delude yourself into thinking like, oh, I'm doing fine. I'll just do a little bit more. Oh, I'll just have one. Like all the things that we do, people who have been addicted and understand what it's like, you, if you're not honest about your own use and the way it's affecting you, you are not going to um, improve it. Totally. And and whenever I heard somebody should go try controlled drinking, I always saw it as you'll be back. You know, you're never going to pull it off. Right. But and and then but the the converse of it is if you do. Good for you. Well, right. And that's what it says actually in the book. Like it actually doesn't say, oh, everybody's going to fail. It says if you do, great for you. If you don't, we're still here. And with somebody who's pursuing moderation, can they pursue moderation within a program? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's um, there's a bunch of people um, called harm reduction therapists who actually work with individuals 
on this basis all the time. And there are groups like HAMS, which I'm not going to remember what the acronym stands for, but um, they will work with their self-help support, mutual aid, whatever you want to call them these days, uh, run by Kenneth Anderson. And the idea there is that, you know, you figure out what control or moderation looks like for you and and they will work with you to, to get there. To get there. And I mean what's interesting is the original moderation management, which also still exists, there was this big controversy in the nineties because the founder of it got in a drunk driving accident and killed somebody. Mm. And everybody's like, see moderation See, it doesn't, doesn't work. work. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. The problem was that she had written into the book, if you can't do moderation, if you find out that you can't do moderation, you should go to an abstinence program. And she was in AA when she had that drunk driving accident. She had been trying to be abstinent, not trying to moderate. And so it's like, I don't think, you know, an anecdote is an anecdote. It's not an example of, you know, but the reality is that like whoever wants to spin it can spin that story to say, see moderation works, see abstinence works, see none of it works. You know, they can just use that story for whatever they want to use the story for. The reality is that most people, like, so we now have this concept, alcohol use disorder, right? We used to call it dependence, which was a stupid name because dependence and addiction aren't the same thing. But there used to be in the DSM, there was substance dependence and substance abuse. That was also a terrible term because you're not abusing a poor little drug. And the term abuse implies sexual abuse, child abuse. It makes you sound like a bad person, like you're abusing people or you're abusing yourself, which has another whole connotation, which doesn't make sense in this context either. So, so they changed it from two binaries like substance abuse, which was basically college binge drinking or substance dependence, which is basically addiction. Now we have substance use disorder, mild, moderate, or severe. Now they haven't made up their mind whether moderate, and severe are both what used to be called dependence and should be called addiction. And mild should be simply what used to be called abuse and should be called misuse. <laughs> it gets crazy, doesn't yeah, it? It gets like the, the, you know. But anyway, the truth of the matter is that substance use disorders are a spectrum. And so the fine gray line that everybody talks about when you go from being like not addicted to being addicted is a fine line. Right. Sure. Um, but if you look at the like epidemiology of this stuff, and there is a point to this digression here. <laughs> if you look at I'm the, with you. <laughs> if you look at the epidemiology of this stuff, most people have mild disorder, what used to be called abuse. And mild disorder is very amenable to moderation. Like what basically happens to college binge drinkers when they graduate college is they go to work and they can't binge like that anymore. And so maybe they still do the binges on weekends or maybe they do the binges once a year on New Year's. But It's they, managed. Yeah, it, it's fine. The moderate to severe cases are where it gets complicated. And it's certainly the case that the more severe your addiction is, the less likely you are to succeed at a moderation outcome. However, there are still people who do on the far end of that spectrum. So I would just say, like, a, a lot of people are like, well, I can, like, moderate things that aren't my drug of choice. But my drug of choice, I am not going to be able to. And I feel like that. Like, I, you know, I could, um, I could drink or I could, like, smoke some weed 
I really don't like those drugs very much, so it doesn't like cause me issues. I am not going to be like, oh, yes, I shall do some controlled heroin shooting today. This is not happening, and definitely not happening with cocaine either. I just don't mess with those because, for me, that would be a bad idea. Have you ever done controlled drinking and even had it pop in your head for a second? Oh, I could go for a line of Coke right now. No, it doesn't happen. But the funny thing is, I think part of the reason that it doesn't happen is that, like, even though I went to AA for many years, I really didn't drink very much during my active using. Like, I was never a daily drinker. I was never, um, I was rarely drunk. Like, I sometimes used it to go, to come down, but I mainly used heroin. So it was just like, it's a different phase of my life. So it's not like if I drink alcohol, I think, uh, you know, I'm disinhibited enough so I can, you know, it's just like, I like have a glass of wine with dinner and I'm like, ah, this feels nice. And okay, now I'm going to go play with the cat. Are you ever at like an addiction conference and you have a drink and they're like, wait a second. Yes. You're not supposed to be I drinking. always feel really awkward around this issue when I speak at places. And like, if it is an abstinence oriented place, I just won't have a drink. Right. But yeah, it's, it's always like, you know, and they do serve like, you know, there'll be these big meetings and like, you know, Norvolk from NIDA will be that, you know, like, and people will be standing around with drinks in their hands, like, you know, and it's just like, it is kind of a funny thing. Definitely. I'm to be in the recovery business at a bar or an event where everyone's drinking, it can look really crazy. Right. And it like, right. It, it like, I does definitely does like, you know, make me feel awkward. And so this is why I'm just like honest about it. And so like, if somebody happens to see a picture of me with a glass of wine in my hand, they're like, they don't have to be like, aha, see, she's sneaking it or like whatever. Like, but you're a true, that. you're a true maverick though. I mean, like if you really want to think about it, you're a heroin addict who is a Coke addict who got sober in 12 step, who found harm reduction, who moderates alcohol and some cannabis, but you're blazing your own trail. You know, not, I mean, I mean, how many people well, are the like thing, that? The, uh, the reality is that most people who recover are more like me, but they don't have any 12 step at all. Like they, they recover, like there's, you know, so if you look at this epidemiology, which is really interesting, right? So they like survey people in the general population, huge numbers of people, you know, you get um, like 10,000 20,000 people in the sample and they follow them over a number of years and they basically ask them things like, you know, how much do you drink every day or, you know, how much, um, what drugs, you know, they, it's really, um, you know, they basically do a psychiatric diagnostic interview with them under the guise of an epidemiological survey. And since it's anonymous, nobody, you know, gets outed. So it's fine and it's perfectly legitimate and really interesting research. And so what they find is that like, you know, they survey this group and, and one year, you know, let's say 5% of the group qualifies for a substance use disorder diagnosis, including severe. And then three years later, like half of that group qualifies and the other half doesn't, but they still, but a lot of them are still using sometimes. And so you, you basically see that the most common pathway from addiction is to recovery, like 70, 80, 90% of people, it depends on where you're measuring on these spectrums, do recover at some point. Again, fentanyl is now a complication to this because some of these studies are older than that. But for the most part, people recover and they recover without self-help or any form of formal treatment. Now, most of those people 
are going to be on the more moderate end of the spectrum. But even when you go you know, on mild, you know, I just wish they had mild and severe and didn't confuse Moderate things. is confusing. Yes. So those people are mostly mild users. Mostly. But they, but they do qualify for a diagnosis. They're not just plain users. But they're not crackhead. No. I mean, they're, they're mostly like the crack version of a college binge drinker. Right. right, right. <laughs> You know. They smoke crack occasionally. Yeah, but Quarter, I mean, the, quarterly crack smoke. So such bizarrely enough, such people exist. I believe it. And so anyway, and they do like ethnographic studies where they it's called a snowball sample, ironically. But what they do is they like they find a bunch of coke users and they ask them about their friends, and that creates the snowball sample. Um, but anyway, this this technique allows people to like really look at the full spectrum. And when you look at the full spectrum of, of people who use whatever drug it is from alcohol to cocaine or heroin or whatever, you find that most people have no disorder. Then among the people who have a disorder, most of them are mild. On the severe end, this is when you do start to see the chronic relapsing sort of thing happen. And again, not all of that group. Most of that group still recovers without any aid. Um, now, that doesn't mean that they don't do any work in their recovery, but they don't formally go to a meeting or anything like that. So while I appear weird in the context of the recovery community. I didn't say weird. I well, said you were a maverick trailblazer. <laughs> there we go. Okay. I didn't say weird. <laughs> okay. That's me, right? But, but you were also severe though. Yes. You were no, not there's mild. no question about that. And so I, yes. And I mean, I think like if you, if you talk to the people who are like in the harm reduction world, my story is a lot more common. But yeah, and it's it's also like a lot of people who sort of took this path just are not out about it. And I wasn't for a long time simply because I didn't want people who were in the 12-step world to be like, oh, she's relapsed, we don't have to listen to her. And which I think is a very stigmatizing view to take, but I can understand why some people take that perspective. Well, I think the interesting thing it's like my reaction to moderation is fear. But it wasn't considering that, oh, if it works, great. And then if it doesn't work, get into an abstinence program. Yeah. It isn't just do this and use heavy and call it moderation. Right, right. That's no, not I, the answer. No, no, not at all. And I mean, I think like, you know, again, if you're going to, like, one of the things that a lot of people who do try moderation with their drug of choice find is that, it's a lot harder to moderate than it is to be abstinent. And that is basically because if you're abstinent, it's one decision. Yeah. Just know. You don't, you know, it's not tricky. It's not at all complicated. But if you're trying to moderate, you have one. Can I have another? Is that okay? Am I fooling myself? Like you have to like really. I can you, smoke hash, but I can't smoke shattered or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah. Of course. I mean, there's a million the spectrum is crazy. I can smoke a little opium lying down, but I can't shoot heroin or fentanyl standing up. Yeah. Like, or what day of the week you're yeah, doing it yeah. on. Like, Wednesday know. night is not good, but Saturday is okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, because, you know, I remember for many years, like during my active addiction, I was like, well, I'm just going to do heroin on weekends. And that never happened. It was always the weeks met in the middle very quickly. Yes. Did you ever smoke opium? I did in college, like once or twice, and I did quite like it, but it was just... Some person had it, there was a bunch of it around, and then it was gone, and that was that. Yeah, that's something I never got to do. It's interesting. Uh, there was a guy who is in New Zealand who's growing poppies 
and is making himself an opium tea and trying to maintain something. There are some people who do that. I've known, I, I wonder if this is the same person who used to be here and maybe he moved there, but um, there was a, maybe in the 90s or O's or something, a uh, sort of opium tea kind of craze. And <laughs> I, people, missed the, I missed the craze. Yes, it was, it was not, you know, but there were some East Village people that I knew that did it and in the drug policy world. But the thing is, it is, it's an opiate. It's addictive. It's, you know, Kratom, a very mild opiate, but still you can have physical dependence with it. And, you know, I absolutely think it needs to be available because a lot of people substitute it for either pain or for addiction for more harmful and more deadly opioids because it's very, very, very difficult to overdose on kratom. And it's very, very easy to overdose on fentanyl. So you want to have the kratom available for that, but you should not pretend that it does not have potential for both addiction and dependence. Yeah. Kratom is a huge hot button uh, subject. It's like you go to the gas station and it's like, I'll take a seltzer and some kratom. <laughs> and it's not like, and no one's saying that the kratom is going to get you addicted. No. And I mean, I think like this is the problem with our drug regulation system. Ideally, we would have a situation where you could approve the less harmful substances as a way of not having this situation. And that way you could have warnings on them and you could, you know, reduce the harm associated with them, but you wouldn't make it so restrictive that it's easier to get from a drug dealer. And what we have now is the worst possible world. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. I mean, you know, you could either like, basically what we have now is gangsters introduce whatever stuff they want to introduce to the market whenever they want to introduce it. There's no control over it whatsoever. It's basically the way alcohol was during prohibition. And so a lot of people die simply from the unregulated nature of the market. Now, we know that you can also kill a lot of people by advertising opioids, as happened with the whole Purdue Pharma situation. That's not a good idea either. We need to have a system of regulation that works a lot better than it does. One of the things that's really ridiculous about the current opioid situation is that, you know, since around 2011, we have cut the medical supply of opioids in half. And we doubled the overdose death rate because we cut the supply and did zero for the people we were cutting off. For the pain. For the pain or, or the for the addiction. Right. Like we had people, like if you have a pill mill, most of the people who are going to the pill mill are not actually pain patients. They are people with addiction who are trying to buy their stuff legally. So they go and say, I have pain, and they go to the pill mill, right? What exactly is the pill mill? So a pill mill is just a doctor and maybe a group of doctors. And I went to one for benzodiazepines during my active addiction. And basically you go in and you pay whatever you would pay for a medical visit and they write a prescription for you. It doesn't matter what your actual condition is. They will just write the prescription. So it's dollars for doses. I mean, some of people trade sex for drugs. I never did that, but um, that also happens in these pill mill sort of situations. And so, you know, when OxyContin came but out- But that people offer themselves for pills. Yeah, or the doctor suggests it, depending on how perverted the doctor is. <laughs> but um, anyway, that is never a legitimate medical practice. Doses for dollars is never a legitimate medical practice. Prescribing without an examination for a patient that you've seen 20 times is 
sometimes a legitimate medical practice. But the problem is anyway, these pill mills, they just did doses for dollars or sex for drugs and they made tons of money. And most of the people going to them were addicted themselves. Some of them were just dealers and went and sold it onwards. And the whole climate allowed it because people were under the impression that only 1% of people get addicted via medical exposure. This is actually true. Studies have since backed this up. This is not just pharmaceutical lying. The truth is that if exposed in a medical context to short-term opioids without a prior history of addiction, that's the rate. What's the rate? 1%. Okay. And again, depends on age, prior history, blah, blah. But if you just say 1% in any medical context, then you're forgetting that 10% of the population has experienced addiction or is experiencing addiction currently. And so you're going to see a much higher rate by just like allowing everybody. Because normally in a medical context, like let's say like I had um, had to have uh, major dental work and I had to have some opioids to deal with the pain from the dental work. And I was very nervous about this because, you know. Sure. And I did not get high at all. You I took was, it for the pain. I took it for out. the pain. And I didn't have, I like, it killed the pain and I had zero high. Slightly disappointing, but I was glad to. <laughs> well, you did it, you did it deliberately to not get high though. I'm sure they gave you X amount of pills and you took them totally as prescribed. No, I, that's what I did. But what I, what I was interested in was if while the pain was being relieved, I would feel it all high, which I did not. Nothing. It was just like, oh, the pain's better. I'm asleep. Good. And I had no craving or anything like that. So that was like a relief because I have to have this whole process to get implants. But right, like most people who get opioids in a medical setting, for the, for the most, like, let's imagine like, you know, your mom goes and I'm going to say your mom has no history of addiction. I don't know, but she doesn't. The case she didn't. This, case of this example. So she goes, she has surgery, she gets Oxycontin. The odds of her getting addicted are about 1%. Well, it's funny because my mom died of leukemia, which isn't the funny part. The funny part was when she was getting treatment, she was down the street at NYU and they gave her Dilaudid uh-huh. and I was in the room with her and I had just gotten off of methadone while they were giving her Dilaudid and she thought that was the funniest thing because she enjoyed the Dilaudid, but she wasn't like, I need to get it now. Right, you know what right, I'm right. No, well, I'm very glad that she was able to enjoy her Dilaudid because our Me current too. crackdown means that there's dying people and people with severe chronic pain who are just being left in agony. And a lot of them are dying by suicide and um, some of them are dying by overdose because they're turning to the illegal market. And this is a disaster. We should absolutely, if somebody's already addicted and they're going to a pill mill or they are a pain patient who's dependent and the drug is working for them, leave them alone. You're not going to prevent or solve anybody else's addiction by messing with those people. How did you get into this work? Which work precisely? Just your crusade. Would you say you're on a crusade? I mean, I wouldn't since I'm Jewish, but the um, I would say that I care very deeply about people in pain and people with addiction. And I have been recently, over the last 10, 15 years, completely horrified by the fact that we do not at all care about people with pain. Like, we say we care about people with addiction. We also stigmatize 
crazy. But for the pain patients, we've done nothing. We just cut them off, didn't give them any of the settlement money. We don't care if it worked for you. Other people got addicted, so go curl up in a ball and suffer. And I just think that's evil. And selfishly, I also feel like any one of us is like one accident away from severe pain and disability. Yeah, this talk is really scaring me. I figured that when I'm old and dying, I could really enjoy a lot of painkillers. Exactly. You're saying I can't. Right. And so we should fight for our right to undo that when we're that old, you know, right? I mean, I just think it's it's horrifying that we would, you know, think that like addiction is so much worse than death in agony. And it's not. And also addiction and dependence are different things. And if somebody has severe pain and they are willing to take the risk of being dependent, they should have the right, just like if they have severe pain and they want to get surgery that might paralyze them, they have the right to take that risk with informed consent. But we as a society are so weird about the way we deal with substances that we're just like, nobody should ever get these substances because a kid might get addicted. And the thing that is so ridiculous about that view is that, like, they seem to think that by preventing a woman in childbirth from having opioids during, during labor, they're going to prevent a 16-year-old from getting a street fentanyl pill. And that it's is... The opposite. Yeah, it, it's not how it works. It's like, you know, the vast majority of people in the opioid crisis who got addicted to prescription opioids did not have a prescription for them. They got them from grandma's medicine cabinet or they got them from somebody who uh, had an addiction and went to a pill mill or from, you know, mom's medicine cabinet or their friends. Like this was not like, you know, now there certainly are the odd cases where, you know, some high school kid gets prescribed, you know, the jock, has a sports injury and he gets prescribed it and he likes it and he goes and becomes addicted. Almost always in those cases, that jock was already smoking pot, occasionally doing some coke. Drinking, whatever. Yeah, exactly. And so it's not medical exposure that we need to worry about. We should. Now, again, if you're a parent and you have a 16-year-old and they get a prescription for opioids, mom's keeping that prescription, Right. Like, mom's controlling that, and, like, I'll give it to you when you, like, but that isn't what we did. We just gave kids that age control over, you know, they would give them 30 OxyContin because only 1% get addicted because they didn't look at the full study. <laughs> so, you know, and also, not only did they not look at the full study, they just randomly believed what pharmaceutical companies said without, like, actually looking at the data. So, you know... And the pharmaceutical companies benefited from these people needing the drugs eventually. Yeah, well, what's, I mean, the real irony here is that, like, so they were giving out, you know, 30 oxys like candy, and most of it was sitting in people's medicine cabinets for a long time, unused, because they were not addicting 99% of those people because they let them sit in their cabinet. And, you know, most people today have an opioid stash in their medicine cabinet somewhere because they are afraid that if they get hurt or in pain, they will not be able to get them. And then they forget that they have that stash and their kid gets into them. Right. And then how do you explain that? Like, Because like, I appreciate what you're setting up here, that, that there is a misunderstanding of the story. But when this whole when this huge number of kids or this generational addiction pops up in a place where it never was before because 
the supply was overflowing. How does that happen? If if it is only 1% of the first time experience getting addiction or getting addicted. Well, because they sits, it sits in their medicine cabinet and then the teenager gets into it who is not the patient. And what also happens is that if you, and this is the same thing that happened with crack, you've got a poor deindustrialized community where there's a lot of people in despair. And it's cheaper to get the pill than to get alcohol or it's easier to get the well, pill. Well, you're right. Gra- you know, grandma goes for her hip pain and she gets 30 Oxycontin and each of those pills is worth $30. Right. She sells some of them because she doesn't need them because she's not addicted. And, you know, we have not reckoned with that, you know, because white people have to be innocent. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, the, the reality is that, like, one of the things that was quite interesting about the current overdose crisis and the current opioid situation when the whole prescription thing took off, we did not have a big crime wave. Like crime was continuing to go down. And this completely destroys all the idea that, you know, addiction turns you into an evil criminal kind of thing. But it was because these communities were flooded with cheap stuff. They had enough drugs that they didn't have to steal for them. Yeah. Or, and they were doing illegal things, but they weren't getting arrested for, you know, selling them to their friends. So, you know... I am absolutely not saying that we should allow pharmaceutical companies to do this again. Like, that is wrong and bad. What I am saying is that people in pain need to have access to opioids appropriately. And the way that that should work is via the people who are already on them, leave them alone. Because they are four times more likely to die of suicide if you cut them off. So you're not saving them from later becoming addicted by, like, cutting them off. If they haven't become addicted already, leave them alone. What supercharged you on this path? Like, what changed you? Because obviously you weren't always bursting with every bit of information, passion, advocacy, journalism. Like, what changed you? Like, on the pain stuff particularly? Just, or just, just the addiction? Well, I mean, it was more like when... This whole pathway for me really started with um, HIV and AIDS in the 80s. And I was so horrified that nobody was teaching people who injected drugs like I was doing at the time to protect themselves that I just got really angry and became an activist and a journalist and all of this because I was just like, like the thing about drug policy is and that has always sort of obsessed me is it's really stupid. It's not it's not a problem like Israel. Like, that is complicated, and I'm not going anywhere near it because I just, it's just awful on all sides. Drug policy, it's like we actually know what helps people. We actually know what doesn't help people. We actually know, like, where this racist stuff is in this policy, and it doesn't work. I mean, I guess it works if what you want to do is lock up black people, but that is not a... It's legit. really, really effective for that. Yes, it's very, you know, but it's like, you know, if you actually want to do drug policy, we have a really good idea of like how to make it work reasonably well, but we don't. And so I thought, well, this is kind of an easy problem. Like we'll just tell people the rational thing about it and then they will do the right thing, which of course is way too uh, simplistic, but it is the kind of problem that I like because sometimes you can actually really make progress. And I mean, we saw that with like syringe exchange and the rise of harm reduction and, you know, it's slow and it takes a really long time and is, you know, 
complicated. It's not as simple as, you know, you'd like to think. But, you know, so yeah. So I, I mean, and also it's funny because if you ask somebody why they're obsessed with something, you really, it's hard to get an answer. It's just because like that thing happened to grab me. No, but I, I, I you know, I, I've been doing this show for a long time and I came in here, you know, whatever, two years ago. And I was like, wow, that was really incredible to talk to you. And I feel the same way right now. It's just like, thank you for being here and, and knowing all of this stuff and expressing it so clearly, it makes me feel incredibly empowered. And, and in the last 10 or 15 or 20 years, what are some good things that have happened in terms of policy? Has, have there been any good? Well, yeah, moves? I mean, and this is like, you know, before the pandemic, you know, we were just seeing enormous progress in drug policy in general, lots of marijuana legalization happening, people recognizing that, you know, syringe exchange does not make things worse or, you know, make people use more drugs or get kids into drugs or anything like that. It just very effectively prevents the spread of HIV and hep C and this kind of stuff. We were seeing, you know, during the pandemic, people were like, oh, wow, like harm reduction. That makes sense. Like, it's like, because like, oh yeah, people are going to do risky things like socialize, but we can wear a mask. And so the whole idea, like, became really more into the mainstream than it had ever been. Now, people now are sort of trying to stir up a backlash and they're trying to like be like, oh, look, there was decriminalization in Oregon and therefore the overdose death rate doubled and so decriminalization is bad. No, what happened is that like in Oregon, which still actually has one of the lower overdose rates in the country, West Virginia has the highest, which didn't do anything like decriminalization. But in Oregon, fentanyl arrived as a major part of the drug supply just at the time that coincidentally they had decriminalized. And it was, it's obviously a bad coincidence, but if you look at, and I can legitimately say it is a coincidence, because if you look at every place where fentanyl arrives, you see that rise and it's a linear, it's like a really strong correlation. And so like when fentanyl came to New York, you saw this. When fentanyl came to like, you know, Vermont, you saw, you know, it's, it's like when fentanyl becomes the majority of your street opioid supply, you see this horrible massive rise and it has nothing to do with, oh, decriminalization in Oregon, you know, and, and it's not, it's not only, you know, this sounds, oh, it's an excuse because she's saying, you know, okay, well, how come West Virginia or how come, you know, any of the states that have had the worst of this in the South, which are no, by no means harm reduction paradises and decriminalization capitals. It's just like, you know, and when you look at like San Francisco, everybody's like, oh, you know, see, like harm reduction is really bad because like San Francisco has hippies and there's people on the street. And it's like, okay, well, first of all, San Francisco has had hippies since the 60s. And there have been people who are living on the street in the areas where they live on the street for many, many years there. What creates an association between addiction, mental illness, and homelessness? High housing prices. Right. It's like, how are the housing prices in West Virginia? They are low. Do they have a big homeless problem or public drug use problem? No. Do they have a massive addiction and overdose problem? Yes. You know, and I 
feel bad to be seeming like I'm picking on West Virginia, but that is just the worst example. There are many other states, like the West Coast states are below the average in the overdose death rate, in large part because fentanyl was slow in getting there. How do you get fentanyl out of the drug supply? This, I wish I could answer. I mean, one of the things that's really quite scary right now is that Afghanistan, which supplies 90% of the heroin to Europe and almost none to here, is apparently completely cutting their... Poppy production down. Yes. So I imagine Europe, which has really not had fentanyl very much, is going to be seeing a lot of it soon. And once it gets there, it's really difficult to dislodge because... It's so it, cheap. It's, it's just so much cheaper to make. Like, if you just think about it, like, I'm an evil factory owner. Okay. Like, do I want a product that has, like, farmers and processors and smugglers and it's smelly and it's large? Or do I want something that two trucks can supply the entire United States for a year? Like, do you know how small that is? Do you know how s small and cheap that is? And, oh, and two guys in a lab can make it. And you don't need this whole infrastructure. And it's pennies. Yeah. And it doesn't And smell. everybody gets addicted to it. Well, I wouldn't... I mean, see, this is the interesting thing, though, because I do think that what is going to happen and what is, you know... I am afraid that the end of this overdose crisis will basically be that the current people are dead. And they are not being replaced because young people are not turning to opioids the way they were, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And this is great news in terms of the kids. Like, they really are just like, okay, just like the way it happened with crack. Like, they're like, okay, this is killing my sister and my mom. I'm staying away from that stuff. Maybe I'm going to do some ecstasy. Maybe I'm going to, like, smoke some weed. Maybe I'm going to drink, but... And what, what about fentanyl in the ecstasy supply? Or well, fentanyl, fentanyl is very rare in the ecstasy supply. Okay, I appreciate it's it. It's really rare. What about like the Xanax supply? That is bad. And again, like the... So maybe um, they learn not to do Xanax. Yeah. Because I kids mean, are dying from fentanyl and their Xanax. I mean, see, this is the thing. Like if you look at, thankfully, teenage overdose is actually really rare even now. It has doubled in recent years, but that meant it went from, you know, 200 to 400, like, for the whole country, which is good. Like, you don't want those numbers to be high. But, you know, when you just say there was a, you know, 200% increase in teen overdose, like, it sounds like it's happening on every street corner. And, you know, thankfully, that is really rare. And I do think that, you know, honest messaging about what's likely to be where and fentanyl test strips are a really good you know, harm reduction method, because I think, you know, okay, Wall Street does a ton of coke. Are there many stockbrokers dying from fentanyl? No, there are not, because they get good coke on Wall Street. And this is just another sort of illustration of the way that prohibition worsens inequality. Like even in alcohol prohibition, like poor people got like blind. Jake, Jake leg and right. blind. Right. You know, and rich people had stuff smuggled from, you know, Canada that was legit. Like Canadian Club. <laughs> Did you ever do pink Coke? The real pink, pink Coke? No, I don't think so. Like, I think ours came from Colombia and was like, you know, we definitely had that shale and we definitely had like some of the stuff that looked quite beautiful. Um, and the iridescent fish scale look? That, exactly, yes. And then we had some cat piss. Um, yes. You know. <laughs> With... You know, when there is no answer for fentanyl in the drug supply, except 
death and then learning to not die like your brother. Well, but this is what I think is going to be interesting, right? Because what happens after that? Like, there will be a street opioid market of some sort. Right. You know, but I don't, like... It's it's a really I mean I'm actually my next book is going to be on the future of drugs and I'm kind of really interested in these questions and sort of like is there a way even if we maintain our current policies to try to trigger harm reduction on the dealing level? And what, other, what could that look like though? Some kind of synthetic that's longer acting that isn't as potent. And then who do you go to to develop it? Well, that's right. This is why. That's like, a really interesting yeah, question. No, and I mean, there's actually people studying this and, and trying to, you know, do something about this. I mean, I, I like have. Like a cheap, long-acting synthetic opiate instead of fentanyl. Yeah, or even, you know, you could, if you can cut fentanyl appropriately so that it is, like, really appropriately cut, which they managed to do for, you know, the pharmaceutical kind, uh, they make it correctly. Yes, exactly. If you can cut it enough that people can be less likely to die. And also, if you find something to... Sub the reason xylazine's in the supply is because it makes the fentanyl high last longer. It creates a more long-lasting... The legs. Where does it... It comes from China also? I think so. I mean, I'm kind of surprised that they haven't just taken it off the veterinary market because it's... I don't really... like. It's very weird. It's just so bad for you. My dog prefers xylazine to fentanyl. Well, you and know, ketamine. I think your poor dog is going to have to like, you know, get another supplier because I just really think that that is so dangerous. There's no re like any. That's horrible. You know, but I think the, um, what I'm trying to say is that there's probably another substance and I don't know what it would be, but there are other substances in that class that are less dangerous that could provide this extension effect that you could promote or encourage in the sense of that, like, by cracking down on actual design. You know what I mean? Because dealers don't want their customers to have grievous wounds and to die and quit. Like, if you had something equally cheap and accessible that would not cause those effects, you would use it, right? Do, do the, does the government... Also, whatever happened to cutting drugs with, like... Laxative. Yes, like, you know, lactose, it's really cheap. So is inositol. Caffeine. Manitol. Like, right. like whatever happened to beat dope, right? <laughs> well, but people know that the dope is beat and they don't want it. Well, no, I'm not saying that. No, I know. Listen, I, I hear you. I, I, I read your article about fentanyl dealers and um, imprisonment. Yeah. I have a very close friend who was a fentanyl dealer, and he got busted in Ohio with, I think, 5,000 pills. Oh, wow. And he got, you know, locked up and he was a big time dealer. So he had a ton of money. He bailed himself out on a hundred thousand dollars bail. And now he's like living free in Suffolk County and Ohio has a secret indictment for him and they want him to go turn himself in. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, I just like, you know, we know that whether you call the sentence a sentence for drug-induced homicide and you're going for 15 to life because of selling fentanyl, or we call it Rockefeller drug laws and you're going 15 to life for selling heroin, all this does is lock up poor, low-level, often people of color um, for many, many years, and it does not solve this problem. Like, you might make an argument that 
you could lock up a lot more low-level people for three years each and have a much better effect. This is not an argument I'm going to make necessarily, but if you wanted to make a criminal justice-centered argument, you could argue that, you know, the way that we have seen punishment work when it does, and I'm not saying I agree with this, but is swift, certain, and fair. And that means having sentences for murder for the person who survives an overdose while the other guy who, um, you know, used with him dies and it could have just as easily been the other way around. You know, I mean, somebody who's a major dealer, you can make a much better case for locking them up for a longer time. But, you know, somebody who is, you know, just selling to support their own habit is a different story. But we also just know, like, we have done this experiment over and over and over. Mandatory minimum sentences do not work. And if you just think about the way any corporation is structured, there's like one guy at the top and everybody else is on the bottom, right? Like, okay, so maybe there's 10 guys below that guy who are also major guys, but the rest of them, like, it's just the way the scale of human enterprise. Most people are not at the top. <laughs> Most people are at the bottom. And so just by math, you're going to end up locking up a lot of low-level people who, because poverty and inequality are very easily replaced because there's no other meaningful work for them. And so, you know, this is where the drug problem is not simple. This is where the drug problem intersects with poverty and all of these other inequality, all of these other things that are much more complicated. But it is pretty clear that if you have a society that minimizes extreme inequality, and I'm not talking a society where like everybody has exactly the same thing. I'm talking about like, you know, Finland or something where- um, <laughs> There's a range. I yeah, get it. yeah. And but where the poor people are not insanely poor and the rich people are not insanely rich. The rich people are still rich and the poor people are still poor, but- Everybody's they, living and eating and stuff. Exactly. And not homeless. And wouldn't that be so great? It's like, it doesn't make any sense why. I mean, what it comes down to is, is the, the real insanity of where we're at in capitalism. Well, no, I, I like, I completely agree with you. It's just like, if, you know, I don't think billionaires should exist. Like, no, it doesn't make any sense. And I don't know why, why they think they should exist. No, I like, really, I, I agree as well. Um, but no, it's, you know, people should not have that much power. Like, and you shouldn't be able to have money that you cannot possibly spend in 20 lifetimes. And nobody should be hungry or houseless when you have way more than you can spend in 20 lifetimes. Yeah, no. It doesn't I mean, make it, sense. No, it doesn't. It's, it's, you know, and I mean, how to get from here to there is the complex, like, difficult question. But I do think that if we accepted less inequality, we would have, like, a lot less addiction. And I mean, I think something like fentanyl with the death rate that it has can only last in a market for a long time if that market is filled with very desperate, unhappy people. Like, I mean, I do think that what happens when you have a drug supply that's as deadly as it is now, everybody who can quit does quit and people don't rush to replace them. And the rest of them, you know, given the odds are dying. But does everybody that can quit, quit? I think they try. They try. But, you know, they, but there's so much, I guess there's failure and then there's death when they fail. Well, right. And I mean, I think that like, again, we could improve the number of people who can quit by safe supply. And what know? about here versus Portugal? Well, right. And so like, you know, so Portugal does not have fentanyl. 
Um, How do they keep it out? They don't have to because they have Afghan heroin. <laughs> they, you know, I mean, the thing is that, like, you know, when gangsters have a market that's working for them, you know, they have their suppliers. They come from, you know, countries that produce actual heroin. And it just, you know, inertia keeps the market the way it is. Well, so maybe if we produced heroin in Georgia or something. Well, I mean, Florida. I never fields. thought I would ever come to a time when I'd be looking back at the like, you know, heroin being so safe. Right. But that is compared to this. Holy cow. Like, you know, I think we need creative thinking here. I really think that like and hydroponic poppies on, on the West Side <laughs> Highway. <laughs> well, the real the real thing is like allow doctors to prescribe for people who are actively using. Like allow So they're uh, not looking on the street for fentanyl. Yeah, yeah. Like get them dilaudid. Like get them pharmaceutical oxygen. heroin. Though. Yeah. All like, you know, and do it in a way that is like there's complexity here, right? Because if you just say made methadone available in ice cream trucks or something, you'd end up with a lot of dead people because methadone is difficult to prescribe and um, new users can die quite easily. So we do not want, you know, Philip Morris fentanyl like on every street corner. Like, no, that's not good. We have an existing known population of people who are already addicted. Those people should have access. We can worry about the next generation at that time. But like at this time, if we want to help people, we need to make it accessible, but not like promote it for the people who need it, you know? And it's, you know, again, like Canada is doing interesting things in terms of this because they have fentanyl and they are trying to do safe supply. They have not really been able to bring it to scale. And there's a lot of political opposition, but the people who do get it really benefit and Switzerland's another really good example because, again, they they don't have fentanyl yet. But they went from having, like, one of the highest numbers of users of heroin in Europe to having one lowest. And they have prescription heroin that gets to about, it might be 10% of their, between, like, between 3 and 10% of the people who have heroin addiction. I always fantasized about moving to Switzerland and getting... The heroin prescribed. I mean... And that was my big Swiss fantasy for years. <laughs> what's interesting about Switzerland, though, is Switzerland, you know, you have to use your heroin there. Like, it is, like, very controlled. And, I mean, part of that, I think, is a cultural thing. Like, it's a very controlled society anyway. But, you know, like, in the UK, when they had heroin prescribing, you could take it home. It was much looser. Like, they still have some of it, but it's only for people who are really old at this point. <laughs> Um, in England. Yeah. But there is a trade-off that you have to make between making it as accessible as the dealers make it and over-controlling it like the way our methadone clinic system is, which is way too, you know, you need to have, say, like a methadone van, not an ice cream truck, uh, where people who are registered can, like, go and just get a dose that day if that's what they want. And then they can come back the next day if they feel like it. And then they can maybe get on a more regular script if they want. But like no urine test, no hassles, no nothing. Just as easy as it would be to go to the spot, get something for the day. This kind of stuff makes sense. You know, again, different substances have different levels of risk and you have to regulate them 
differently based on that. What's the Portugal system? So the Portugal system, they do have heroin prescribing. I don't know how widespread it is there, but they do have it to some extent. They also have safe injection facilities and possession of substances is not illegal. Like if you get caught possessing a personal use amount of heroin or whatever, you'll basically get the equivalent of a traffic ticket. And you're supposed to show up to a dissuasion council and get you know, told, well, you're a bad boy, you did that once, don't do it again if you don't really have a problem. Or if you do have a problem, hey, you could get treatment here if you want this, you could try this, if you need clean needles, if you need safe injection, blah, blah. So nothing is mandatory. Have you ever been there? Yes. I feel like I, I interviewed uh, Dr. Carl Hart during uh, COVID. Ah, uh, yes. And uh, he, I think he talked about going to some drug-using festival out there. And all I imagine. <laughs> My, my my imagination of Portugal is like everyone's tripping and then smoking heroin by a fire. But and- no, it's like, I mean, the thing is, it's like you just see nothing. Like, I mean, what happened, like, so when they decriminalized, I'm pretty sure it was 2001. For the first 10 years, they had put a lot of money into treatment, a lot of money into outreach, a lot of money into like homeless services for people who are unhoused, all this kind of stuff. Then they cut that in half. And it started to get worse again. And then they were saying, oh, see, decriminalization doesn't work. Well, yeah, when you cut half the services, are you really going to be surprised that a problem reappears? It wasn't that, like, arresting people worked and then didn't work. (laughs) It was like, and not arresting people worked and then didn't work. It was, you know, because, like, I think people have this idea that, like, right, places with decrim, like, everybody goes there to get high. Everyone's high all the time. Right. But, no, it's like decrim is just really not arresting people for possession. And arresting people for possession does not work at all. Like, because, like, if you do a ton of it, right, New York City in the 80s, we arrested many, many people. They went to jail for 30 days. They got out. They went to jail for 10 days. They got out. They went to jail for 15 days. They got out. It did nothing other than cycle them through this and put them at higher risk of overdose, which wasn't as bad it is as it is now. You know, it's like you just got these people with these histories. And, and you see this in a lot of, like, unhoused people. They have these histories of, you know, 50 arrests, 30 jail sentences, you know, but they're all short because they're for crimes that you, it's not justifiable to put them in for long periods of time. And so what you do with people cycling in and out of, you can't even treat, like, it's just like, it makes no sense. And if you try to make the sentence be treatment, then you end up with a person doing more time in treatment than they would have done if they just did their 10 days in jail. And it becomes not a sensible strategy because if you fail in the treatment, you can end up way longer in the system than you would have if you just did your time. So it's stupid. It is not an effective, you know, we, if we really thought that arresting people was a good way to get them into healthcare. We would arrest them for heart disease. We would arrest them for heart attack. We would arrest them for diabetes. And they would get into the jail and the medical system would open for them. And they'd be cured. Yeah. I mean, come on. Like, have you ever been to jail? If you've been to jail, you get your medications taken away when you walk in the door or the police take them off you um, if they haven't already. And so whether you have diabetes or a heart condition or whatever, you're not getting care for a few days you know, that can kill you. Um, So this is a terrible way. You know, who thinks that care in jail is better than care 
like on the street when you can just walk to the hospital. Like this is why people die of withdrawal in jail and they don't die of it on the street because in jail they just ignore them and then they die. Whereas like on the street, like somebody sees you. You they, go to a hospital. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so it's just a stupid way of doing healthcare. It also like arrest is not a good way of diagnosing people. Like you may arrest the people who are the most messed up, but you may just arrest the guy who got unlucky. Like it's just not a good way of getting people healthcare. And this is a health problem. Like if we want to have people recover from addiction, we need to get to the root of why they are using. And that's going to be some kind of pain emotional pain, physical pain, you know, despair from economic circumstances, psychiatric conditions. You know, people who are happy and productive and everything is going well, even if they get exposed to the best, most ecstatic drug in the world, are generally not going to go out and become addicted. Because their lives are good enough already. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, and I've talked to people who like, oh, I went to the hospital. I got OxyContin. It was amazing. And I told my doc, don't give me any more of that. Like, I don't want to mess with that. I don't want to like risk. What I have. Yeah. And I mean, it's like, this is where it is simple again. It's like when people are able to live productive, reasonably happy lives, I mean, everybody's not going to be happy all the time. Um, But I want to be happy all the time. (laughs) Yeah, so do I, but it doesn't work that way. I mean, and, and that's, I mean, this is another thing that I that's really reality. find. reality. Yeah, but this is another thing I find really interesting about heroin prescribing. Because a lot of people, and I certainly thought this when I was using, oh, if I could just get all that I wanted, I would be set. Everything would work. It'd be good. And when this actually happens, people have a ton of time on their hands. Like, first of all, they're not spending all their time trying to cop. And like, and now it's like, oh, what am I going to do now? It's not a career anymore. You right. know? It's like, and it's, it's just kind of like, it reminds me of, you know, when, when you have a big success or you fall in love or whatever, like, and you think, oh, I'm going to be cured. I'll be happy forever. I'm set now. And then of course it just doesn't do it. Similarly, when you get the drug that you think is going to solve it, it doesn't. And then you have to learn to live. That's the God-sized hole. Well, we yes, one about. could yes, one could one could call it that. Um, you know what I'm saying? Yes, like, no, I do. Um, and and right, and I mean, I think like you know, everyone wants a meaningful, fulfilling and life. Life, and when we make it impossible for people to have that, when we do things like have a healthcare system that's so inaccessible, or you know, just make it impossible for people to get decent jobs, or find good relationships, or connect with their friends, or whatever. And when the planet's about to collapse, uh, you know, uh, it's really hard. People are going to turn to drugs if you don't start to try to solve these problems. When we started talking, we were, you, you started talking about treatment, that treatment tends to just prescribe 12-step. What would good treatment be? So good treatment, I think, is going to be different for everybody. Because, like, you know, what we're talking about now... You want like a meaningful, fulfilling, connected life. This is what what people need to sustain recovery, right? How do you prescribe that? You can't say, okay, well, I'm going to say like deadlifting, that will be your career. Um, You might suck at deadlifting. Um, Like you might hate it. You might like want to be an opera singer. You might want to like be a race car driver. You know what I mean? Like what 
people find joy in is incredibly varied. And thank goodness for that, because otherwise we wouldn't have people who study like weird things like insects, which I'm not at all interested in, but like some Somebody, people, somebody's got to do it. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, and there's some fascinating research there, right? So like we can't prescribe this for people. So what you need to do in good treatment, I think, and this has to be an ongoing process, but start with a really good assessment of where the person's at. Now, you may not be able to figure out the psychiatric stuff right away because withdrawal and other things may be confounding this, but you want to know psychiatric history, like trauma history, again, outlines of it. You're not going to want to re-traumatize them telling it when they're in withdrawal, like that's not good either. But, you know, find out what's up with this person. Why are they using? What are they trying to get? And try to help them have the hope and the support to find that outside of drugs. And so for some, for one person, this may look like I need to finish and get my GED and maybe go to college. For somebody else, it might be, okay, I need to get on medication for depression. Okay, I need Suboxone. Okay, I need to start a workout program. Okay, I, you know, it's going to be different for different people. So I tend to think if you were to have an ideal treatment system, you probably want to separate the safe bed for somebody to sleep in if they're living with a drug dealer or don't have a house from the services because otherwise the services will end up kind of being one size fits all. So you want the person to have a safe place to live and a place to receive whatever services that they need that is accessible to them and they don't have to be the same place. And what you want for medication treatment, you want there to be tiers where, okay, you would, somebody who's like actively using and really not interested in quitting. I just, today, I don't want to get high. Here's your methadone for today. You can come back tomorrow. You don't have to, whatever. Blah. Okay. For somebody who's like, okay, I got to stop this. I want, you know, okay, you're going to show up at the clinic every day for a week. And then we're going to like work on take-homes and et cetera, you know, the more structured thing where you get counseling that you want and you get psych meds if you need them or whatever else. And then the sort of, okay, now you can pick it up once a month because you don't need all that other stuff because you're stable now. And those are the three tiers that would allow the best access for the most people without forcing people into services that they don't need. They don't need, right. Amazing. Listen, You've been incredibly generous. Your book, last book was Undoing Drugs. Next book is The Future of Drugs. Yes, I think it's maybe called Your Future on Drugs. I have not. Um, I am working on the proposal now. So Nice. And thank you. I mean, blows me away. Like, uh, much better than The Corrupt Cop. So <laughs> thank, thank you. Well, that, that's, a, that's a real it's compliment. It's a true, true compliment. <laughs> and anything that we could ever do to help you, please let us know. Will do. Thank you so much. Thank you. So I need to say that like when I went in to talk to Maya, I was feeling a little bit, I don't know, not just not as oomphy, not as vigorous as I usually feel about the show. And I was like, what's going on with the show? And then Maya Solovitz was just a bolt of lightning. What did you guys think of her? Am I crazy or were you guys just like Maya Solovitz for president? I mean, put her on the ballot, make it happen. Let me know what you think. Send in an email or a voicemail to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. I have some more like lovey notes that I want to share. This is the loviest note 
ever. It wasn't meant to go on the show, but it was so lovey. It made me feel so special this morning. I had to play it, but I buried it on the show because it's too lovey. It's too raw for, for maybe somebody who's tuning in at the beginning and realizing that dopey is not their cup of tea. It is of course, dopey legend, Michael Mick Popham expressing his love for dopey and new year's and James Glennie. I have to say, I have to give it, give a warning for a bromantic dopey message. And I have to give a shout out to all the romances, bromances, sisterhoods, what fellowship, hatred, all of the love, enmity, amity in the dopey nation is, is the best. But James and Glennie are a, a specific British bromance that needs to be honored. Jules and Piz, maybe. Piz and Croxton. Fucking Katie and Annie Ellie. It's devastatingly uh, powerful. Mars and Austin, perhaps. Uh, other ones have been on the rocks. But the romances, the bromances, the sisterhoods, they've all been incredibly... Uh, impactful to me. I, I love the, the, you know, dopey is a, a rock in the water and the dopey nation is the ripple. And one of the greatest proponents, there's too many to name fucking Steve and Lizanne, Katie and Chieva or however he pronounces his name. Fucking shave your beard, trim your beard, Trevor. Come on, get it together. Anyway, this Mick Popham voicemail, which wasn't meant to be a voicemail is going to make you guys fucking weep. Here you go. And Hot Wheels and a Visa. I have to say it. Sending love. Sending love. Sending love to everybody. The Colleen's. Oh my God. So much, so much happened out there. Margaret and the Professor. The Professor and my dad. What? All right, here's Mick Popham. Um, hi, how's it going? Sorry for this fucking silly voice clip. It's um it's nothing but a show. I just <laughs> I just, um, I'm at work and I'm sorting shit out and I wanted to say, I just wanted to say before I forget to do it, um, firstly, um, thank you for everything you do, mate, and it was, it was meant to be a happy Christmas message, I know I sent you one already, but, um, I just, um, I was talking to James Glennie today, a few hours ago, and just wanted to talk to him in person and sort of, you know, and obviously congratulate him for his six years and that but I like I look at the way that Dopey has helped with my attempts at sobriety and I can honestly say that I would be in a fucking state today if it wasn't for finding Dopey and I and I don't say that lightly I can honestly say from the bottom of my fucking heart that listening to the podcast from whenever I started listening five, five and a half years ago to now the friends I've made and the positive influences that have come from it are just absolute fucking legion um, and I by no means have fucking perfect sobriety or even any real long time but I I can attribute so much of it to the positive influence that has come from 
what you and Chris started and also just what that's that's led to, you know? I mean, one of my closest friends in the fucking world that I've ever had in my entire life is James, and this is someone I would have I've only met because I started listening to Dopey, you know? And uh, it's, it's, it's just fucking ridiculous, man. It's <laughs> in a good way. Um, anyway, I just, yeah, I didn't want to fucking write that out. I couldn't be bothered for a start, plus I'm busy, but I, but I just felt it needed to be said. Um, so, uh, thank you for all you do, and, um, I, I, I know that's something that gets said a lot in, you know, the end of voicemails or emails or comments or whatever, but, uh, I, I truly do mean it from the fucking absolute bottom of my heart. I'm eternally grateful. Um, yeah, and the podcast ain't too bad either. <laughs> it goes all right, you know. It's a good bit of entertainment there. <laughs> no, seriously, it's it's it, yeah. I'm um, nothing else to say. Fucking keep it up, mate. I'm sorry you were sick over Christmas and your daughter was sick and all that. I hope you're on the mend. Um, I love you loads, mate. You're a fucking gentleman and a scholar. Let it never be said otherwise. I'll catch you soon, bruv. Take care. Bye-bye. I went from dope to dopey. It's Ashley Hamilton. Hope you have a great new year. Hello, Dopey Nation. How much do I love Dopey that I'm actually doing this? I never do these videos. Anyway, like I said, anything for Dopey. This is Hannah from the, uh, from the author strip. <laughs> See, I'm getting all shy and everything. Anyway, I'm going to send this off before, uh, well, yes. Alright, Happy New Year! Happy New Year, Dopey Nation! I hope everyone has had a wonderful holiday break, has had some time to recharge, and is looking forward to whatever 2024 will bring us. Let it be health, joy, and recovery. Wasn't that Mick Popham so emotional? Fucking Hannah Sward. She, she wanted to... to uh, Hannah, who, who wrote Stripped, which is an amazing book you guys should read, if you haven't, who's a dopey guest a couple of years ago, she was like, do I have to do it now? And I was like, well, I need it now. And she sent me this video. Everyone thinks they send, need to send a video. But all I need is audio. Just do it on your phone. Ishmael could do it so quick. You want to hear Ishmael do it? Hello, Dopey Nation. It's Ishmael. I can't even do Ishmael. That's how little I'm at Katz's. is. That's what I'm most grateful for. Um, my friend John Bucati ha had a message about sugar. And I decided to have him call in and me and him just chew it up about New Year's resolutions and sugar and more. And now it's a very extra long and extra special Dopey New Year's. Here's my friend John Bucati. Dopey, dopey, dopey. Dopey, dopey, dopey. Dopey, dopey, dopey. Dopey, dopey, dopey. Dopey, 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 Um... Welcome back to the show, incredible painter and Dopey Nation member, John Bucati. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, man. It's my pleasure. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, John. And John and I have been trying to record a New Year's <laughs> Christmas segment since Thanksgiving. John, the other night, maybe two months ago, I was walking 
and John and John and I talk on the phone fairly often. And I was walking the dog, and John mentioned to me that he hadn't had a sweet since last year. And I said, no fucking way. Because I was at Park City with him, but I remembered you didn't eat any sweets with me at Park City. No. Did you did you no, want did you want to eat sweets with me in Park City? Oh man, I want a sweet so bad when I first see it, it uh, everything in my brain lights up and then I don't have it and then I don't want it. But if I eat one, all I want is more and then I go do the same behavior as alcohol and drugs and I just ruminate and I you know three's not enough four's not enough ten and then I get sick to my stomach I get headaches and it's like last year I was over Christmas I'm not gonna blame it on the cat's deli cookies because my sister made cookies but I ate so much sugar I was like I'm done hold I'm on done with you this. need I need you to expound on what does it take to go from being a lifelong sugar lover to being done Oh, okay. Well, in five minutes or less. My yeah. nickname was Sugar Bear uh, as a kid. Sugar Bear? Yeah. Remember the, the, the tiger or the whatever? The it thing was a on the, bear, on the... you fucking idiot. It wasn't a tiger. No, no, the, but, but it looked like a tiger, but it was uh, it was like on the cereal. Honey you know? Smacks. Sugar Smacks. Sugar Bear. Sugar Smacks. Yeah. yeah they named me Sugar Bear because I ate Hold all up, the candy though. and I'd get all fired up. You know, they changed it from a bear to a frog. On honey smacks, but it, yeah. it was oh, a honey. Some manipulative. Oh, yeah, they changed it from sugar bear to honey smacks. See, that's yeah. where they get well, you. Let me ask you before yeah. you even uh, tell me more, John. I just had a smoothie right before we 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 started, and it was peanut butter, yeah. oat milk, yep. banana, um, yeah, and ice. Does that violate? Yeah, well, I, does that violate? No, I'm at a smoothie every once in a while. I try. I don't. I, I eat. I try to eat fruit, it, and sometimes I'll eat like three bananas. But I don't eat sweets. But does peanut butter count? And, is what I want to know. No, peanut butter doesn't it doesn't count. But although it has a lot of sugar in it, I don't eat it. I mean, I try to say no to refined sugar. Period. So, so, so no Peter peanut Pan butter probably has teaspoons of sugar in it. So I would not eat that. But I might eat some peanuts. You might eat an organic hippie peanut yeah, butter. I might eat some hippie peanut butter. I had a Cliff Bar the other day, and I was like, "This tastes—it's all imitation sugar that all does the same thing to my brain. It tasted like an oatmeal cookie, and it was just like this is what I don't want." But yeah, I was sugar bear as a kid. I coped with sugar. I ate all the and little Debbie and I had a, a, a love affair. Um, you know, Twinkies, all that stuff was like, before I ever started drinking, I was using that to cope and, uh, crash, 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 burn my ADD or my trauma, whatever you want to call it was always, was always linked to that. And I didn't realize how messed up it, it made me till I got off on it, got off of it. So wh how, when did you first consider I want to know, does anybody still call you Sugar Bear? No, maybe my friend, my brother's friend might call me Sugar Bear. SB? Uh, if, every time I see him, he he called me Sugar Bear. Sugar um, Bear Bucati? SBB? Sugar, no, Bucati, just Sugar Bear. Sugar Bear. I mean, but you, could, you know, that turned into Sugar Bear in the 20s, you know. 
when I was doing, you know, the devil's dandruff or the booger sugar, whatever you want to call it. It goes to the same place in the brain. So you know why I like it because it lights up the same area in the brain. It's just as addictive. Um, so wait, hold but, up, hold you know, up, hold I don't want to piss. I don't want to, I want to hold people. I don't want to make everybody upset in the dopey nation that if they're just sober, they can't have sugar. I just want to say that I'm not out to tell people they can't have sugar. I'm just trying to relate and share my experience with those who might have head games about like sugar and give them a couple like tips on maybe, maybe not total abstinence, but maybe you can just like replace some things with fruit and maybe you can like, like do certain things rather than, than, you know, have a pint of ice cream every night. But John, are you saying that you're better than everybody in the dopey nation and they should stop eating sugar? Is that what I just said? <laughs> God, no. <laughs> no, I, I, I had a birthday cake for my, I had birthday cake for my birthday. I was 50 a, a month ago and you're like, you had a relapse. And I'm like, I guess I did. Anders said the same thing. He's like, you relapsed. I'm like, well, I kind of did, but I chose to do it. It just, and I got sick. I got well, sick. if you I did, got, like, if you did, if you fucking smoked uh crack on your birthday, would that not yes. be a relapse? Sugar well, bear. Right. But I did. Right. But now sugar's in potato chips and it's in all sorts of things. So it's not, it's not like cocaine sprinkled into everything like, like this is. So it's, it's kind of hard, but you know, I did, I did, I did, I've done some, um, eating disorder stuff. So now that we get real and I've done some, some, you know, overeating classes and a lot of that. And I've done some 12 step work on this. This is no joke though. If, if you're, you know, I, I realize I learned from a lot of beautiful people that like there are a lot of women struggling from um, eating disorders and a lot of men, too. But I didn't realize how big uh, how big this community it's it's quiet, but it's a lot of people suffer from it. And so I'm joking about sugar, but I'm much more happy without the compulsive thinking that I used to get when I ate sugar almost every other day, or I would go like gain 20, lose 20, you know, and a lot of it had to do with this obsession of eating sugar. And now that has balanced out quite a bit. I mean, gaining 20 pounds, losing 20 pounds five times or four times in one year is no joke. Let me, let me be real for a second with you, John. I have a, a compulsive eating problem. Uh, or I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed with sugar. I'm obsessed with it. Like, uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to share something that, uh, I probably shouldn't even share on this episode. Um, but I'm going to share it anyway. Uh, our sponsor sober buddy has abandoned the show. Sober buddy is not a sponsor on the show anymore. And I got an email from them the day after Christmas about it. Right. And, uh, I'm going to bed and I can't go to sleep because I'm, I'm so, you know, I'm upset. I'm scared. I don't know what to do. And I also know downstairs I have a tin of Linda's mother's incredible homemade chocolate chip cookies that I had decided not to eat because I was sick. 
And I was like, you know what? And I, and I also took a dose of NyQuil to go to sleep. But I was, because uh, I was really sick. I got a terrible flu this week, John. I didn't tell you. That's why I didn't yeah. talk to you all week. I was super sick. I had a fever. So sorry, Our whole buddy. femur, had a, a whole, a whole, our whole family had 103. I'm so Crazy. sorry. That's okay. terrible. It's okay. But let me just tell you the story. So Sober Buddy fucking pulls out. The NyQuil isn't working. I'm lying in bed, so upset, not sure what to do. And then I remember there's these perfect chocolate chip cookies. So I go downstairs. I have probably five of them uh, with milk. And then I was like, I don't want to eat all of them because then my kids aren't going to get to have their grandmother's cookies. So I dip into my secret stash of Choco Liebnitz. I don't know if you know what Choco Liebnitz are. They're kind of a biscuit that are covered with dark chocolate. They're an incredible cookie. They're kind of like the paradigm for the Othello that I've been shooting for for years. I have four of those. I have two glasses of milk. I watch a Batman cartoon. I settle down and I go to sleep. And 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 the sugar saved me from my my anxiety. What do I do in those situations, Sugar Bear? I mean, we practice the same principles that you do in in uh, in alcohol and drugs. Call someone. Mm. You know, you're either gonna have you know, or or it was I don't midnight. Know, say the serenity prayer. I well. Jump on a meeting in Brazil. I don't know. I mean, the all I'm just telling you, there's a solution, and that it is. It, and and I'm not saying that wasn't the right thing for you to do at the time. Although I don't encourage milk when you're sick, but I get it. Like that's what I did for for 49 years, so it worked. I mean, it. it what my nutritionist a couple of years ago said is like you just eat the sugar because you're exhausted. And I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense. He's like, well, at nine o'clock at night, you eat this sugar because you're so wound up and then it shoots you up and then it spikes you down. And so I want to tell you this. Here's why I quit sugar. Last year I was dating this girl and she gave me those things. Have you ever seen those things you stick on an arm to take your blood level? Like you wear them all the time. I don't even know what it's called, but it was connected to an app and I saw my levels. And like, even when I had peanut butter and crackers, even when I had like uh, flour or all this stuff that was like potato chips or whatever, like I saw my sugar spike in the middle of the night. I had science behind it. I don't know what it's called, but it's like, it's like an insulin type of detector and they're, they're popular. Um, of course, I don't remember the name. I wore it for a month and a half and realized how much my body was working overtime on stressed out on sugar. And that was enough. Cause I'm visual, I'm visual. So, I mean, I don't, if I, if you're in, in early in sobriety, go eat cake. I mean, don't use cause using can kill you. But I just thought you, you wanted to bring me on the show and talk about sugar. There's a Simpsons episode on sugar. Um, Hold up. First of all, I have has, a lot of questions. I have a lot of questions. Well, go for it. First go question. It. First question is when you when you when when you were in early recovery, did you eat a lot of cake? I had a lot of ice cream. So, and I know like you every night. You were a Ben and Jerry's Americone dream guy. What were your yes. other Ben and Jerry's flavors? You know, I didn't eat till the end. I didn't eat sugar till the end of the day because it would knock me out. And I love to be hyper focused during the day, but then I didn't know how to calm myself. Me down too. With breath, Me, we're, exa- we're exactly this. I'm exactly. The I, same yeah, way. we're very similar. So I would calm down with lots of sugar yeah, at the end of the night, and then I would just crash yeah. out. But I'd feel like 
dog shit in the morning and I'd wake up and pee twice a night. Yeah, me too. And I'd be so thirsty. I feel good. I I feel good in the morning though. I feel good in the morning. Well, that's good. I know. You're probably still high from all the, all the chocolate, all those delicious chocolate. It's such a wonderful, such a wonderful product. Anyway, what were you saying, John? I was saying in third grade, we used to have donut day. And I would go in and they would serve fresh donuts glazed. And then this government issued like juice that was basically orange Kool-Aid. It was nothing to do with orange, orange juice. They called it orange drink in the public school. No, that's what you have. Method- that's have what that's two- they mix with methadone uh, at the methadone clinic. Oh, yes. Terrible. It tasted like Tang times 20. Yes. I don't know. You remember Tang? Yes. Anyway, it was yes. terrible. Yes. So it burned. The donuts were warm. <laughs> two donuts glazed donuts fresh in that every Wednesday, my mom would give me like a dollar and that would cover it by second class or the third class. I'd have a stomach ache and then I'd have to run to the bathroom and on the way to the bathroom, I would drink like tons of water because I would be totally dehydrated. My kidneys were probably stressed out. Then I would go take this huge poop. I'd come back into class and like, you know, I'd be totally ADD, didn't know what was going on. And then I would crash and fall asleep or couldn't keep my eyes open. Now, the reason I bring that up is no matter how bad I felt, the poop, the stomach ache, the dehydration, the sleeping, not getting yelled at in class, I always came back for the donuts every Wednesday. That's addiction at its finest. It's like going... Through all the pain we do, we still pick. And now I don't speak for everybody. Everybody not doesn't have that experience with sugar. They probably don't eat, eat as much as I do. But like still having those symptoms and still going back over decade after decade and still like, you know, obesity. And, you know, I've definitely been 30 to 40 pounds overweight i've been 265 just recently and i'm now like 230 but i like to stay around 220 because i'm i'm six four but but yeah i have let that go so much and you know i i um i just kind of like getting 50 i started going to the doctor and taking blood and looking into my heart and all that stuff and it's probably one of the biggest culprits it's because every time i want sugar then i want bread then i want pasta then i want to like keep eating so it's like i gorge if i have like two cookies at nine o'clock then i'm like a sandwich at 11 o'clock and i'm chips at 11 30 and i stay up and just kind of keep eating and yeah, i just do it um, I, I do it that do doesn't it. feel like that that it, that I can sustain that in the next tw- ten to twenty years. Dude. No, I think I just, it's it's smart. It's it's I do that and I start eating sugar and then I just like quadruple down on it. But when you decided to give it up, talk about what the process was. Well, weird enough, I took a bag of sugar that was sitting, and I'm weirdo. I'm an artist. Um, I took a bag of sugar and then I I took Mod Podge and I smeared Mod Podge on a canvas. What is Mod Podge? What is it? It's like glue. It's like glue or uh, just imagine like taking a glue stick and rubbing it all over like a canvas and then throwing the sugar like glitter and making it stick. So I literally made an art piece and put sugar free on it so I could look at it every morning. And I stuck to like 20 days, 30 days. And then I didn't miss it. That was important. I didn't miss it. And I used every 
I struggled. I used everything that in my power not to do it. And like, it was always those times where people made homemade cookies or, Hey, I made you these, but I knew that if I had one, it was too many. And then it was three months and then it was four months. I just could not have, I just could not have sugar in moderation. Now do potato chips. There's people out there saying, well, what about fruit and smoothies and all that? I, I, I probably had, smoothies here and there. I probably took a drink of orange juice, you know, but for the most part, I just said no to that. And that was, that's how I did it. I really did say no. Okay. Here, let me just boil it down and then I'll shut up. I said no by saying no to the first drink. And then like the same way I said no to alcohol. I just, one is I couldn't just have one. That's it. So I didn't mess with that. Was there any, though, replacement like normally? Yeah, I ate a shitload of fruit. I ate a shitload of fruit. I've heard back from five or six guys that I talked to that are like, man, I I just eat fruit when I'm craving sugar and it sustains it. Also, sweet potatoes are like putting an IV drip on your sugar. So if you have like sweet potatoes, like a nutritionist said that you're constantly getting an IV drip of sugar. So you, you don't crave it and cravings pass. So cravings do, do, pass. do people call you fruit bear or sweet potato bear now? Sugar bear? No, Katie? no, no. And no, they still, they, <laughs> no. Are you looking no. forward to the new year? Sugar bear. Katie. I am, and I have to re up on it because I've I have I've got so much sanity from that. You know, it's just that that it's that thinking disease too. It's like, when am I going to get my next? Oh, I'm going to quit sugar for a week. Oh, I'm back on sugar. I'm going to all that insanity takes up headspace and forget it. But like I said, if you're enjoying it, sugar, then so be it. I'm enjoying. This is just listen, trying to help you. Listen, listen. I'm enjoying sugar, and I'm I'm really considering taking the leap that you're talking about. But the thought that just occurred to me is, have you ever had Haagen-Dazs chocolate chocolate chip ice cream? Multiple times. Sugar bear, Bukati, you have? Of course. Have you ever mixed yeah. peanut butter in with the chocolate chocolate chip Haagen-Dazs? Of course. Yeah. I, I feel like if, I, if I'm going to say goodbye to sugar, I'm going to want that before. I think I need to have that again. I need to spend time with that again before I say goodbye forever, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So, I mean, I did say bye forever, but I could be on it in two years. I just don't, I just had to get some separation from it. Sugar Bear, have you ever had a brookie? Do you know what a brookie is? No. Is it like a, is it like a, a mud pie? No, it's, thing? it's this what, new thing. Shit? No, you know what it is? It's, it's they took, they mixed together brownies and cookies and called them brookies brownies and chocolate chip cookies and it is just incredible sugar bear if you ever are looking well, that's great i basically had brownies <laughs> the same time i shoved cookies in my mouth so, so i've had those my whole life so it's basically you you've experienced brookies i i can't get over your nickname uh john i think you've helped sugar a lot bear? Of, yeah i love it i think you've helped a lot of people maybe me i mean this is the thing i love sugar I hate uh, my belly. I hate uh, not not having an ability to have enough sugar. Like I I I eat sugar. There isn't enough uh, until I'm. The only way I know it's enough is if I had if I get sick, which is the worst. Otherwise, it's not enough. 
So that that's a problem. And and I'm. Did you ever do blow? Me? Of course I've done blow. We're gonna. I have a fucking drug podcast. Yes, I've done. Was there a compulsion to do a lot of blow after you did one line? No, I don't like blow. It wasn't my thing. Um, Oh, I did. I like craved it after I had it. It was like then I had to ride that out the rest of the night, and I hated that. That's the same thing with sugar. Once I taste it, then I start having these conversations that overtake me, and I don't want to do that anymore. I don't do that anymore. I have enough stuff going on in my head, you know. Have I so, triggered you on my on my cavalcade of sugar no, ro- romancing? No, the, I'm not triggered when I don't have it. Dude, That's what I'm saying. Dude, I, you can talk about alcohol all you dude, want. Dude, I don't wait, have wait. It. You want to? You know what I want to call this segment? What? R- romancing the scone. <laughs> God, that's brilliant. Thank you. Um, but I, Stone's never had enough sugar in it. Of course them. not, but it rhymes with stone. I, I just wish, I just wish that it, I, I could walk away because on June 1st, I'm going to be 50, John. And I want to be healthy. I want to lose my unsightly uh, belly and love handles. I want to be fit at 50. I want it to happen for me. And I know the only real path to it is to give up sugar. What else can I do? Well, if you know that, you probably asked me on for a reason. The resistance is strong. I should tell the Dopey Nation you recorded, and uh, coincidentally, the the recording disappeared, and then you started another one, and then then you canceled an appointment on me. This sounds like some junky shit right here, Dave. I'm serious. Listen, I, I can't argue with you. I cannot argue with you. It's like, oh, he's supposed to come meet me to work the steps. He was supposed to come to a meeting. He did this. Then he did that. This is our fourth meeting. I wonder what's going to happen to this video or this this, uh, this audio. I wonder if something's going to just disappear with it so it doesn't have to go into the vault. It's a, it's a good question, John. It's a good question. Is there any message of New Year's hope you'd like to give the Dopey Nation before we're done? Yes, I am a very big fan of hope. I'm a hope dealer. And oh boy, I, I'm getting ready to do something in California. It gives me so much hope. I think you guys should have hope. And even if it doesn't go through, just recreate a new thing of hope. Um, hope helped me help save my life. Um, I believe in a higher power, but I can't prove it. And it's helped me so much that um i've gotten definite like synchronicities and signs from the universe that i'm on the right path dude 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 did you ever read the alchemist i'm reading it right now didn't i tell you to read it that's synchronicity right there no i told you to read it stop it yeah but i didn't know who told me to read it (laughs) i told you to sitting here for a week (laughs) you told me like three weeks ago to read the alchemist i've been reading it and I'm like, I don't know who told me to read it, but I stuck it. I, I read it again. See, it was the second time I read it. Oh, my God. I'm so glad you told me that. I was thought I was never going to find out. I get recommended <laughs> probably 15 books a week, it feels like. Dude, how good and is I it, just, though? How I, good that is it? Was, that stuck. That stuck with me. You said that. And I'm like, don't tell me what to do. And then all of a sudden, 
somebody else told me to read it. I can't figure out. Or they mentioned the alchemist and I said, Oh man, I gotta got read it. No, I, I told you to read out. it. And then I mentioned it you on did. the show. Somebody else. No, did you too. heard me say it somebody on the else? show. You heard me say it on the show. You did? You, yeah. You thought it was a different person. You're a classic sugar bear. Well, classic sugar uh, bear. Well, I don't behavior. remember everything. I don't remember everything, but I know this, that is a nice moment of clarity. While I was telling the nation to, what I was going to say was be kind to yourself. And if that mean, means eating a bowl of ice cream, then that's fine. You're not going to die from that. But how about a pint? Know, how about a pint of yourself, ice cream? Be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself. Go easy on yourself. Take care of yourself. Um, pick a, an intention for the year. That helps me. Um, what, give us I, an, uh, hold up, hold up. Give us an example. What's an intention for the year? You know, I listen to this thing where you have my intent. I think it's a website. Um, and uh, I have this thing where I put their wor words on a bracelet. And, uh, words and on so a my words. What are you talking about? It's like what? a little, it, they send you these little bracelets and I engrave them. I have an engraver and I bang out a word. Last year's word was alignment. And so I wouldn't fall out of alignment. And I used that word all year. So whenever I felt like I was squirrely, I would just get back in alignment. What did alignment mean? Meetings, breath work, you know, meditation, stay that I knew what alignment meant. This year my word is grace. I think I think I think I think I think I think the word should be brookie. Brookie could be your word. Okay, great. You can do whatever the F you want. All right. What do you, you can see? I'm trying not to cuss as much this year, too. I think intention works. The power of intention really works. I believe that. And what you set out to do, you start to attract, you know? So your word, so, is, I mean, your word, no your word, your word this year is grace. Yeah, I'm trying to do things. I, I'm, I'm, I'm like always trying to do things at a faster pace or I'm forcing things. I'm trying to just. Trying to dude, move dude, at a dude. Pace, John, man. you should you should engrave, right? You ready for this idea? In in Brookie. No, 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 no. Well, yeah, that was my first idea. But I have another idea. You should engrave okay. grace, right? Into the bracelets, yeah. and then you sell them as gracelets. Oh my god, I love that. I love that. That'll never happen. It's an idea. It's an idea. You can have it. It is a good that's idea. My gift. It's wordplay. That's it's my, amazing word. That's my gift to you. Gracelet. It's for you. It's for you from me. It's my gift. My grace to you is the gracelet. Is this where I get to say, say strong, dopey nation? This is the moment, John. I missed it last time. Well, thank you for coming through. Thank you for sharing your uh, alignment, intention, gracelet, lack of sugar, nicknames it's been a pleasure as always to talk to you especially for the new year's show thank you and those who are struggling with food there are millions in this country me included struggling with food addiction and it's a serious thing and it's it's real and you know there is a solution and that said stay strong dopey nation and toodles for Chris. Let me ask I you love this. Have you ever heard of, uh, there's an Israeli chocolate company called No Chewing Allowed. Just let it melt no. in your mouth. Oh my God. If you're ever going to come back to the sugar community, I, I'll send you, I'll send you a box of these. These are serious, serious business. 
serious business. Sounds, sounds amazing for those who like it. Well, I'm still struggling with food, but just not sugar. Listen, in the future, one day, is there a time that you and I can can sit back on a bench and enjoy some chocolate truffles together and reflect on our hard lives, or is that never going to happen for you and me? I don't want to say never, but I'm going to tell you right now, I didn't share any of that Cat's Deli stuff you sent, but I gave it. I gave the cookies away, but I ate every morsel of that food myself. All right. Well, good. It was job. so good. Well, thank it you. It was so good. Thank you for calling in and sharing your experience, strength, and hope. And please use Gracelet. God, I might not even use the word grace now that you've ruined it for me. Thank you. I feel good about that. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, man. Have well, a good day. I love you too, John. Thanks. Bye. Thank you, John Bucati. He is a wonderful guy. He is, he is, he really wants to be part of the Dopey Nation, which is beautiful. You know, anybody who wants to be part of the Dopey Nation is part of the Dopey Nation. And I'm just, I, I, it's, it's, it's one of those things. Like I got to do that Park City gig and I got to make friends. And, and John's now one of my pretty close friends. It's amazing. Him, Bill Taylor, another one of my new close friends from Park City. It's, it's, it's a miracle. That kind of shit is miraculous. And, and I guess it's really because of recovery more than anything else. And I love making friends through Dopey, another friend that I've made through Dopey. Here's a smattering of Dopey friends. We're going to start with a fucking fucked up Dopey story from Janine from Chasing Heroin. What is up, Dopey Nation? Happy New Year's Eve. This is Janine, host of the Chasing Heroin podcast. And I was thinking about it, New Year's Eve 2014, I had no idea, but that was the beginning of the end for me, finally, of using. I'd been using for 15 years, homeless, strung out, in and out of jail, and I was in a program, I'd gotten kicked out of a rehab, and I was in a sober living, but I was using, I was strung out, and I made sure I got heroin first, right, obviously, but it was New Year's Eve, and I really wanted meth also, because like, who just wants to only do heroin on New Year's Eve, besides Dave, of course. I wanted to do both, I wanted to do both, because like, it's a party, and I was calling my connect over and over and over again, who had gotten me the heroin, it's my friend, and I was like screaming at him that it was so stupid on New Year's Eve to just only do heroin, and how fucking dumb is that? And I will never forget this as long as I live. He just paused, and he said, I think you need to call your sponsor, <laughs> who he actually knew because we'd all been in rehab together. And so what he actually said was, I think you need to call Rachel. He actually said that to me. My connect told me, to call my sponsor. And it's like that TikTok, the woman was too stunned to speak. I was too stunned to speak. And I actually don't even remember if I got meth or not. But that night I got kicked out of my sober living. And the next day was the end of my using. I went and stayed in my connects shed, a different one, a shed like doghouse basically in his backyard. It was a little tiny shed that he let his dog go in and out of. And I stayed in that shed for three nights. And somebody came and got me and I kicked heroin for the last time. And my sobriety date is January 15th, 2015. And that New Year's Eve was so sad. I remember smoking a cigarette, pacing the garage of my sober living, screaming at this person that I could not go the night without meth and heroin both. And like, I remember right now, I really felt that way. I could not go the night without, without meth and heroin. I did not know how to have fun. And I had no idea that that would be 
my last New Year's Eve high. And if you're someone who does not want to spend another New Year's Eve high, like you don't have to. Many of us have done this. And if this is something that you want to change in your life, a different lifestyle is available to you. You, you don't have to live and die a dope fiend if you don't want to. And who else's breath was taken away when we heard toodles for Hot Wheels last week? I literally was like, <gasps> it just like struck me. So like fucking, yeah, toodles for Hot Wheels and toodles for Chris. Happy New Year's, everybody. Hello, this is television's Jeremy Guskin wishing all of you out there in podcast land a very happy and healthy new year and stay strong, Dopey Nation. Toodles. Dave, and to all the dopey fiends, this is Ethan wishing you a half... Oh, I fucked it all up. I fucked it all up already. This is Ethan Zaplee wishing you a happy and healthy New Year's. Ah! Hello! This is the ghost of Pee Wee Herman. And I just want to say, Happy New Year! And stay strong, Dopey Nation! <laughs> it's very emotional. It's, it's emotional when old friends come to visit and, uh, and remember the Dopey Nation in their New Year's tidings. So thank you to everybody who did that. Now, I'm going to end the show with very, very little bit of recovery. There's, 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 there might be negative recovery in our final guest, but our final guest is a very significant member of our community, and he represents the part of our community that is not necessarily in recovery. Maybe we'll call them recovery adjacent or sober curious or maybe just stoners. It doesn't matter. You know him as Jake from West Virginia, the incredible banjo-playing singer-songwriter who did their version of Good So Bad and changed Dopey Dumb for forever. And we never had him on the show. I, I never thought to have him on the show because I knew he was such a fucking stoner, and then I never thought about it again. And people constantly say, what's up with Jake from West Virginia? I'm scared he's going to kill himself. Um, is he suicidal? What's up with him? And um, I wanted to get him on the show. I talk to him all the time on Instagram. I never talk to him on the phone until right now. For So for your New Year's enjoyment, here he is, Jake from West Virginia. His real name is Josh, and he lives in Oregon. All right, this is this is a very important moment in Dopey history. Uh, on the phone is a very, very, very. It's funny the, the build up here, because over the <laughs> we've done the show for many years, and you sent in your now legendary banjo recording of Good So Bad, you sent it months before Chris died. And this, before we don't say anything, right on the phone we have, we're gonna, he calls himself Jake from West Virginia, but his name is Josh. So welcome to the show, Josh. Hey, what's up, man? So do you remember, do you remember recording the, 
iconic banjo version of Good So Bad. Yeah, I do. I, I you know, I was I was kind of fucked up at the time, but I actually have a pretty decent memory of it. Um, what? What? It was it was the morning after a, a rough night, <laughs> so I was feeling it. But tell me everything um, you can remember. Do you remember the year? Like, what do you remember about it? I want to say it was probably about I don't know twenty. When did Dopey start? Twenty fifteen, twenty sixteen. Yeah. So. It was something like that. It was really early on. Um, Chris was still alive, and I was doing tree work at the time, and I just needed something to keep me company during the long labor. And, uh, yeah, I found Dopey and heard the song, and, and people hadn't sent in a, a ton of covers at the time. Um, sorry, there's an airplane going overhead of me. Um, there hadn't been a lot of covers, so I decided I was going to send one in. There was just two or three. And I was playing in a bluegrass band at the time, and it seemed like an easy thing to do. The weird thing about it, um, the, and it, it's, it's amazing, Josh and I talk on Instagram all the time, but we never, uh, we never actually spoke. So I, I've always wanted yeah. to talk to you about this. So, like, yeah. I, and this, my memory could be faulty, but the way I remember it, right, is Chris died and that email was sitting there. I don't think either of us had opened it. Like, did anyone ever no. respond to you? No. Um, well, I had been talking to Chris on the Instagram back when he was doing it. Um, yeah. If you go back to our earliest messages, me and him were chatting a little bit. But um, no, that, that email never got played while he was alive. Um, yeah, yeah. It wasn't until quite a while after. No, I think I, I th was it. Do you know? Do you remember when it was? Because I mean, in my memory, I don't remember when it was, and I think I should try to figure that out. But in my memory, it wasn't until I feel like it was the episode that it wasn't the episode after he died that we played it. No, it wasn't that soon. Maybe in like the next, uh, like five or ten right. after that right. somewhere. It was a little batch because I saw the email and I read it and I played that fucking version and I cried my eyes out. And uh, oh, and it just, everybody. And then the worst thing was that nobody wanted to hear me play the song again. They only wanted to hear your, <laughs> your fucking version of it, which was very oh, humbling. Um, and, then, and, 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 and then, of course, you did... Uh, the another iconic dopey number, the dopey show, uh, which I love. I play it. I play it for every Christmas show. Tune on into the dopey show if you're super high or feeling low. If you need feeling a place, low. yeah, man. Don't know where to go. Everyone wants yeah. to know. Everyone thinks you're like fucking suicidal, needle in your arm <laughs> in the basement, ready to fucking end it. So I wanted to get an update. So I always write back, no, he's doing good. <laughs> but why don't you update the Dopey Nation on, on your whereabouts? My whereabouts? Well, I'm no longer Jake from West Virginia. Um, as Begets would say, I'm now coming to you from the ganja fields of Central Oregon. There you um, go. Soon, soon after I sent in that voicemail, I decided I was going to make a pretty major change in life and uh, pursue a dream in the legal cannabis industry, uh, which has been a pain in the ass, but <laughs> I'm doing it. Um, yeah, man, I'm not, you know, I never was the guy in the basement with the needle in my arm. Uh, 
I've I've definitely done my share of party and and, and dabble and and uh, I've had to taste pretty much anything I could get my hands on. But you know, my misery is more of that that slow, long stoner <laughs> burnout. <laughs> grade alcoholism uh you know the, the much slower painful one no, i think mine is that too you know mine was like yeah just no, that's th- why i like it yeah of course it's like uh i was not the two weeks at a time i was like the five years at a time <laughs> and then like look yeah, up and no, be like man. what the fuck is going on um yeah but but you all you also like so when's the last time you think you did opiates Oh, opiates? Uh, <laughs> I was about to say five years ago, then I remembered I smoked opium last night. <laughs> Shut up. You smoked opium last night? Yeah, just a little bit. Just one just one tiny little hit. Was it out of a really long opium pipe and you were lying on your side? You know, I wish it was. I just I just dropped it on the end of a joint and uh, chased the dragon, as you will. Tell me where where do you get, where does opium just fall into your lap? It doesn't. I mean, I don't. I don't think there's any real opium in this country. Um, I make it. I grow it and and make it. And before we get carried away, I probably consume about a gram of opium a year. It's it's pretty mild intake. We were just we were just talking about this on the show with Margaret Cho about homegrown. Oh, and I was. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. tell us, tell us, tell us about homegrown opium. Well, I mean, that's sure you want. <laughs> it's pretty oh, yeah. dang easy. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe you don't. Uh, yeah, tell us a little bit. Don't don't let don't yeah. you don't need a grower's guide here, Josh. Just a nice, sure. easy, easy little description, if you can. Yeah, well, you you throw some uh, bread seed poppy seeds out in your yard in the spring and let them germinate in the ground and wait until they grow up and flower. And the flower's done, then you have that nice, fat, juicy pod. And you go out and. You make a couple slits and you go back the next day and you collect what oozed out. And there you go. That's raw opium and it's. Uh, and how 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 good is it? I mean, it's not good. It's like I wonder if it even does anything. Uh, it's very low alkaloid content. Um, people do a lot more like refining and stuff to get it into the more traditional form. Right. It's like it's more of like a romancing the opium kind of thing. Exactly. No, no. I I like growing them. I like the flowers. Um, I think it tastes really gross. I'm not not even sure whether or not I've grown the true, correct variety. So to be honest, I'm I'm not sure if I'm getting high off of it at all. But But it's the romance. It's the romance. And do you and also and also like, can I mention Kelly real quick? Oh, for sure. Yeah. So the other great connection uh, is that Josh's partner... Did you guys get married legally? We did get married last year. So Josh's wife is Kelly yes. from Brain Flowers Designs, who uh, did our first real real design, you know, our first, like, post logo design. She did the train logo after Chris died. She did the big... Josh, Josh told her to do the Big Bird logo. Tell her that. Tell that story real quick. That was, like, the greatest yeah. thing ever. Uh, well, I, I, it took quite a bit of convincing. She's, she's a busy lady yes. and, uh, she didn't know what this dopey thing was. It, uh, it took a while before she caught on to it and, and truly appreciated the beauty of the dopey. But, um, yeah, I don't, you know, I was laughing my ass off at the old, 
Big Bird's story when you were doing the, the kids' birthday parties. And I, I just had this vision of that drawing with your legs sticking out and <laughs> the cigarette smoldering and just nodded out. And, uh, yeah. It's, yeah and, I, asked, and, I asked her to whip it up probably like 10 times before she did. But <laughs> Yeah, she did it and she sent it to me. And I, I remember I was waiting tables at Katz's when I opened it up. And I was like, oh, my God. And, and and it was the Big Bird logo that – so, I mean, and that's, like, I think our best-selling design. She didn't charge me for yeah. it. You know, everybody no, loves no. it. Everybody lives for it. And, it. and it's because you mentioned it to her. You also tried to get her to do – you had her do the the classic ice cream, ice cream Grateful Dead kid uh-huh. with the yeah, Blue Mountain Powerade. Uh, that one didn't hit the same way. The Big Bird thing just hit too hard. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know. I know. I, I personally really liked the uh, Europe 72 one. Power. No, I do too. I do too. Let me <laughs> let me ask you this though. Uh, yeah. Do you think Dopey is a recovery show and where do you stand on your own personal addiction versus recovery? Oh man. It's a, it's a complicated question. Yes. Um you know, Dopey is a recovery show, and I've never been in recovery. I've been actively using something the entire time I've ever listened to Dopey. I've probably been high every episode I've ever God ever bless heard. you. God bless you. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's super important to me because it helps me keep my shit in check. Um, listening to these other people's stories and testimonies about the, everything they went through, and especially with the, the stuff that I dabble with, it, it really helps me keep it in control for the most part. <laughs> so I don't know. I see it as a form of harm reduction. But, uh, yeah, man, I definitely consider myself an addict. I mean, I get addicted to everything I ever touch. I <laughs> right. Um, opiates, unfortunately, or, you know, opiates were huge growing up in Virginia and West Virginia, the whole Oxycontin and pharmaceutical uh, epidemic, um, and I definitely messed around, but it was never really my my main thing. The uh, I could never really get past the, the nausea and the sickness. Um, my thing has always been more so alcohol and benzos and marijuana and you know, other various drugs in my younger days. But um, yeah, I mean, I. I still have a prescription for Xanax. Um, I try not to abuse it, but I had an incident the other day. <laughs> and how bad does it get with benzos? Just out of curiosity. Dude, well, that's the thing. Through this show and things like Airwid and uh, Reddit and stuff, I'm, I'm well aware of the consequences of these things. Right. And, uh, I struggle with my my mental health and my anxiety and, and depression. And which is the reason I gravitated towards that in the first place. But, um, yeah, me too. You know, I, I don't ever want it to not work. Um, I've been taking benzos for the past 15 years on and off, but I've always kept it pretty under control. Like never more than like once or twice a week or even more sparsely than that. Right. Um, but, but I can tell when I do those chemicals, it is that moment where you are like, oh my God, I can, I can think, 
all the shit shuts up. I can finally have some peace. Um, I know I see the potential for it to be extremely problematic. I know, but I mean, like, let's be, let's be clear about something. It's 15 years. You take it twice a week. It's like, you can say, and I I don't, you know, disparage you as calling yourself an addict. I think it's healthy because you are probably a total fucking addict, but you have some boundaries. You know, I don't think I don't, I mean, this might be controversial. I bet you would benefit from abstinence. Like, why not? Like I, I did, you know, I really benefited from abstinence, but I also had, I was like a horrible, you know, I, I ate Xanax every day, a ton of it, like to the point of multiple seizures all the time. It was horrible, but it's like, you don't, I mean, I think you could benefit from abstinence, but I think that you're, you're, you're holding it down. Like what's, what's, what do you think you're holding it down or you're not holding it down? Should I not co-sign? Should I not co-sign you holding it down? Co-sign it. I'm (laughs) loving this. (laughs) Co-sign it all day. Um, You know, from an outward appearance, I am holding it down. I've got a really good job in which I have risen through the ranks of in the past couple of years um, to the point where I'm pretty much running this grow for a big legal company here in Oregon. What are you uh, growing? Are you growing? Are you growing for cookies? Oh no, no. Fuck cookies. We're, we're that real heady shit. I'm not going to throw the company out there, but it's like, it's the best company in Oregon. Hands down. What, you ask anyone out here as far as extracts go. What is your most, Oh dude, there was a kid I went to school with who became some kind of extract wizard. If, do you know of extract yeah. wizards? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I work with them. Have you ever closely. heard of a kid That's, named, uh, now he's an older man, I guess. His name is Pat Brooks. I don't know Pat Brooks. No. Oh well, wow. oh well. Wow. He he had long dreads in college, and now he's some extract wizard. But all right, forget Pat Brooks. And Pat Brooks was the fucking kid with an ice cream cone smashed in his head in college. Like he was that kid. But tell us what is what is the greatest strain you guys are putting out there? Man, my favorite this whole year has been this one called Mule Fuel. It smells like straight. It smells like pure DMT. That's really? all I can say. And that's an extract of DMT. Uh, I mean, I smoke it often as the flower, but yeah, we do hash and, and live resins of it too. All right. It's fucked up. Like I, it's like hearing about somebody talking about like cookies or something. I, and I don't mean cookies. <laughs> I don't mean cookies, the brand. I mean like hearing about like some amazing chocolate chip cookie, something just twitched oh, in me sure. when you said it smelled like DMT and you only smoked the flower and you said it's mule fuel. That sounds like my kind of <laughs> thing. I, all right. It yeah. It's, Babe, it's, I'm telling you, this is the dankest weed of all time. Oh, you have God. never smelled any. Imagine the smelliest, gassiest, most foul, dank, dank basement yes. weed you yes. have ever smelled. Yes. And multiply it by 10, and that is the mule fuel. Yeah, you're, you're speaking. Mark my like, words, Dopey Nation. You're going to be here the mule fuel around. Okay, we're not talking about this anymore, Josh. Anything else? <laughs> is there anything else you'd like to add? Have you ever considered. Uh, abstinence or no? Why would you? Why would you consider abstinence when well, you have when you have unlimited mule fuel? That's the thing. It's not a it's not a financial burden for me anymore. Um, it certainly was and was fucking my life up in that way out east. Um, and if you say I may not be an addict, but man, when when ninety five percent of your paycheck for ten years goes towards marijuana right. and alcohol right. over rent or you know, any other priority in life. I, I beg differ. <laughs> so would you say you're um, a farmer, horticulturalist? I'm a farmer. 
I am a farmer to my core. Yeah, no. Most of my adult life, I've I've been doing farm work or garden work in one way or another. Dude, it sounds to me like you're living the fucking dream, Josh. And I'm proud of you. Dude, you know, I, I really am. Like, I love what you do. And I miss the music, though. You playing it all? I know. Uh, a little bit here and there, but not like I used to, no. Well, Dude, it's hard. This this job is a lot. Doing this weed thing professionally, it's a it's a lot. Is it inspiring? Is it inspiring for you? Um, it was, and now I'm kind of struggling with it. <laughs> it's it's just, uh, man, I don't even know. It's I'm, I've become disillusioned with 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 it, and it's becoming a little bit hard. You become dis what disillusioned with what aspect? The the legal industry. The, um, you know, this new modern world we're in, uh, where you can just go to the store and, and buy it everywhere. And all it, these kill, it kills, and it kills the romance of the homegrown opium, uh, completely, you don't completely. I just have a job that might as well be working for any other. I mean, I have a great job. Don't get me wrong. I work for one of the best companies, but, um, yeah, I don't know. Being this deep in it, it's just. I don't know. You pursue a dream for so long and then you, you do it. And I'm kind of like, what's next? Well, the dream changes, right? So what is it next? Does. That's the, that's the question. I don't know, man. Did you I ever read, know, did, did you ever read the book, The Alchemist? I have not actually. Do you familiar with it? But no. if, do you listen to books on tape at all? Sure. Yeah. Listen to Audible, The Alchemist read by Jeremy Irons. It's all about pursuing your personal legend. It's a beautiful book. Yeah. It's going to blow your mind. Smoke a little mule fuel while you listen to it. <laughs> I'm serious. It's going to uh, listen to it, okay? And then give us a book report. Will you do that? Yeah. You will? I will, uh, I will do that. How, I will. How, how yeah, about, I could use some inspiration. Oh, dude, this it'll blow your fucking mind. And it's only like three hours long to listen to it. It'll, it'll blow yeah. your mind. Um, and then we need a new song or at least something. Yeah. Or cover. I know. Come on, do something. Come on, hook it up. Oh yeah. And then, if, if I could send you a cover, I could do that easily. But you know, it, when I was playing in bands and stuff, it was a lot easier to just hop in that mode real quick after work. Do you know how easy? Drink all you, all you have to do is be like, don't smoke mule fuel, stay strong, donation, <laughs> fucking toodles. <laughs> it just needs to be a minute. I'll slap it on the beginning of the show. It'll be great. Everyone will be so happy to hear you. Um, any, any, any new year's plans that you'd like to share with the dopey nation? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm now four days into, uh, abstaining from alcohol after a solid six months daily bender. Um, so I, I might try and keep that going up for a little while. <laughs> okay. Uh, feeling, feeling pretty good, but, um, you know, honestly, this next year, I just, I really want to try and prioritize my, my health, my mental health. And, uh, I got a little, little deep, a little lost in the sauce this last year. And I want to try and get a little more grounded and maybe connect with my spiritual side a little bit more if possible. Well, I mean, you know, I, I have, I have, I have a lot of suggestions for you, Josh, <laughs> a lot of ideas that could really open things up for you. Um, but you know, you know, you know, we're fucking here, you know, we're here and, uh, and we, and, and dopey nation loves you and I love you. And I'm so glad, uh, 
you could pop in for our New Year's show, man. Is it? Yeah, yeah. I just, I, I just want to say that uh, the the love and support that I have felt from the Dopey Nation just through that song alone is like more than anything that I ever got from playing in a band for ten years and playing countless gigs. And uh, I just, it means it means a lot to be able to be in touch with all these people that hit me up on Instagram and stuff. And, isn't it crazy? Isn't it crazy? It's crazy. It's so many people. It's wild. <laughs> and, I yeah, I'm just really grateful for everyone's support and kind words because I often am having rough days and that means a lot to hear from people. But dude, like your voice over that banjo, uh, it, it, I don't know how to say it captured the song, but also it, it, it was before he died that you recorded yeah. it and it didn't come out until after and it just captured that feeling and it was very yeah. it's very magical you know and 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 I just I I'm very grateful for it and and it also it also made me feel really good because it made my song it made mine and just my I wrote it with my friend Justin it made our song better you know it just was yeah. it, so I I appreciate that um, a lot. And you've heard a bunch of covers. What, do you have any favorite cover uh, besides your own? Um, of a good so bad? Yeah. yeah. There's one that's a, uh, it's like a girl singing and it's like a heavy, like punk version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it's really fuzzy. Yeah, it is good. I love that one. Yeah. That one is so good. Um, but man, this morning I was finishing up last week's episode driving into work and I heard your version and I fucking started crying a little bit. So oh, stop it. it. You know, the original still hits home. All right, good. Thank you. Thank you, Josh. Please send my love to Kelly. Yeah. We love you guys. And um, and I hope we, you guys have to come to DopeyCon 5. You know, I'm really, I'm really con- seriously considering it for the first time. <laughs> but you should start preparing now and make it a thing. I, and she can sell shirts and we can come up with some kind of thing and you can play. We can, we can figure some shit out. And me and Matt Weirmeyer Carroll can drink beers in the hotel room. That's not happening. Matt Matt's working a program. <laughs> Matt plans on celebrating a year at DopeyCon Five. Maybe you can too. I'm sorry. Maybe you can be like eleven months uh, alcohol free. Well, yeah. You're well, like, you're like I, I, I doubt I doubt that. You're like fuck you, dude. <laughs> you're like yeah. I, you're like I got six days and I'm working on it, but you don't really listen. Josh, sky's the limit. Consider DopeyCon Five, and I'm really really glad uh, we worked this shit out. Yeah, man, that's been really nice. All right, uh, I love you. And I appreciate everything you do. I love you too, and uh, and send uh, and send love to Kelly, and uh, and thank you. I'm gonna play. You know what? You know, did you did you listen to the Steve Poltz episode? Uh, he was that crazy fuckers. songwriter. Uh, we recorded it at Park City. People thought it was the yeah. best. Do you know he had crazy, crazy, crazy stories? He did uh, a New Year's song that I'm going to play just before the end of the show. And then I'm going to close it with your good. So bad. So, uh, awesome. So thank you, Josh and fucking stay strong. Dopey nation. Give us stay strong. Dopey nation. Before we go. Stay strong. Dopey nation and fucking toodles for Chris, hot wheels and Colleen, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And happy new years. Happy fucking new years. Happy New Year's, man. All right. Thanks, Josh. Dopey, dopey, dopey. Dopey, dopey, dopey. Dopey, dopey, dopey. 
Okay. We we hear from two more old friends before we go. First is Jess Kent, and the second introduces herself just fine. Happy New Year, Dopey Nation. I hope you all have an amazing New Year's. Let's have 2024 be the best fucking year ever. Stay safe out there. Stay sober. Whatever that shit looks like to you, whether it's 420 friendly, a drink here or there, whatever it is. I love y'all. Stay safe. Dopey Nation, what's going on? It's Dopey Dress. Wishing you all a happy, happy New Year. Hope you survived the holidays. Uh, 2023 kind of sucked for me. I don't know what it was for you guys. So here's to a 2024 that rocks. Um, I'm just going to work on being kinder to myself. You know, I can be kind of a dick to myself and I can be a dick to other people. So I'm trying not to be a dick to other people and I'm trying to be not be a dick to myself. That's kind of it. That's my New Year's resolution. I love you all. Uh, toodles for Chris. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and I hope to uh, see you guys soon. Big kiss. Bye. All right. In an unprecedented move, Josh just called me back and said he needs to say one last thing before we end the show. So please, what is it? Okay. Nobody is putting fentanyl in the fucking weed. <laughs> How do you know? We are not doing that. Because I've smoked all the weed in the world, man. I'd fall out and die if someone was doing that. All I've right. never heard of. I know. I know all the stories. I know, nobody's doing that. <laughs> all right, they're not putting. They're, so that, that's that's straight from the ganja farms in Oregon. What about in and maybe in uh in in Grass Valley? Maybe they're they're fentanyling up the weed in Grass Valley. Or maybe Grass Valley. That's probably just because someone's smoking blues while they're trimming. Right. Well, that could see that could be the whole story, though. That could be the whole thing. That, it, if it is happening, that's the extent of it. What do you think is more likely, weed in Halloween candy or fentanyl in weed? Um, I don't know, weed in Halloween candy by accident just because they gave you weed candy, but yeah. still, I'm, I don't, I don't I think can, either of those are very likely. Okay, razor blade in an apple or fentanyl weed in a vape pen? Fentanyl weed in the vape pen, just because that one guy called in and said he put fentanyl in his own vape pen. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. All right. Well, I appreciate the messaging. Yeah. I thought you were going to say how Dopey changed your life, how it saved you. <laughs> you had, I thought you had something good to say. You just need to vouch for the weed industry. Jesus Christ. You guys are doing fine for yourselves. I thought you were going to say something. Oh, it's been killing me. I heard everyone say this, though. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you for setting the record straight, Josh. I appreciate it. All right, bud. Jake from West All Virginia, right. everybody. Are you sure? Wait, hold up. Hold up. Are you sure you don't want to say how dopey saved your life before you go? I mean, it's working on saving my life. All right. Just stop it. Enough. Enough. All right. (laughs) Goodbye. Thank you. All right. All right. Well, there he is. Jake from West Virginia settling the record. He votes no weed, no fentanyl in weed. No fentanyl in weed. Maybe weed candy at Halloween. What's your vote? Who cares? We, we had it with that. Do you guys think I can offend people by calling heroin addicts junkies as a heroin addict, as a junkie? I don't know. It's crazy to me. What a crazy turn of events it's been. Now, I hate to bury this on the show because it might be the greatest part of the show. He might have been the greatest guest of the year. It might be the most generous contribution in the history of the show. Maybe not, but it's fucking beautiful. Here he is. 
Steve Poltz. Check him out at stevepoltz.com with his song, Survivor's Dopey Nation. Dopey Nation, Dopey Nation, Dopey Nation. It's not an abomination. Dopey Nation, Dopey Nation. Gonna give you your ration. Dopey Nation, Dopey Nation. Remember that it's New Year's. And a new year means a new leaf. New goals, new dream. But don't put too much pressure on yourselves. This is your old pal Steve Poltz reminding you that dang it all... You've done some good things. It's baby steps. But don't go out drinking or drugging. Play the tape to the end. It ain't worth it. Maybe get together with some friends. Break some bread. Or maybe just sit at home and chill out and meditate. Let's meditate together. Breathe in with me. This is going to be our year. You know why? Because you're friends with me, Steve Poltz. And I'm friends with you. So we're going to help each other. Because we are the survivors. And we've made it this far. We're blasting off to the highest star. Are the survivors and we're touching the sky. My only advice to you is don't die, don't die, don't die, don't die. Happy New Year to you and you and you. I hope your skies are sunny and blue and blue and blue. I hope the wind stays at your back and that you never ever ever fall flat. Let your head roll back and let it all wash over you. Drink it all in, the good, the bad, release the sad. There's an ancient flow of a river guided by the weather. Make a raft out of popsicle sticks and float on forever. Float on and on and on and on like Huckleberry Finn. Smile at all the serious crap as you're going in and know you're a survivor of the highest magnitude on a cliff overlooking the galaxy and you've got the keys to the power of the ignition of nutso my gutso you're a butterfly let the days roll by you are floating like a butterfly you are stinging like a bee you are Cassius Clay, you are Muhammad Ali You're a technical knockout Yell at the stars, yell at the moon and say Yippee, yippee, yippee We are the survivors and we've made it this far We're blasting off to the highest star We are the survivors and we're touching the sky my only advice to you is don't die, don't die, don't die, don't die. Happy New Year to you and you. Hope your skies are sunny and blue and blue and blue. Hope the wind stays at your back and that you never, ever, ever fall flat. But if you do, I'll pick you up, dopey nation.
What's up, Dave and Chris? My name's Jake. I'm 25 years old from West Virginia. I just found Dopey about two weeks ago, and it's my favorite podcast of all time. Y'all are hilarious, and it's just gotten me through some really hard times. And Though I'm not clean myself, you know, it gives me a lot of hope for the future. Um, I really like Dave's song, and I'm going to do a little cover of it here on my banjo. Hope y'all don't mind too much. I wrote a uh, third verse myself. Sorry about the poor quality. It's just on my phone. And, uh, sorry about the banjos. Things hard to keep in tune. y'all hear this makes it through the uh, big inbox emails feel free to play a clip on the show if you want if not I know it kind of sucks alright I really appreciate it thanks y'all